You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Crystal Cove has been a hub of paranormal activity. You might recognize some of our more famous visitors. Captain Cutler, Miner, 49er, Charlie the Haunted Robot, and who could forget the terrifying stylings of... Space kook. They all turned out to be fakes. Thank you, Velma. We're just solving mysteries. All the kids are doing it. No, No, they're they're not. not. We're not saying find new friends. Yes, we are. Find new friends. The gang is misunderstood. We only got one thing on our minds. Solving mysteries and building traps. That's two things, Fred. We have a mystery on our hands. Now! This is gonna be awesome! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Carol Borden. Hi, everybody. And also joining us after such a long time is Father Malone. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. You know, I'm on sabbatical from the Church of Chargar Gothicon, so I'm happy to be talking to you meddling kids. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we're not talking about a movie for once. Instead, we're looking at Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. It was the 11th incarnation of the Scooby gang running from 2010 to 2013 with a total of 52 episodes spread over an astounding 156 weeks. It was also, to me, the best and most self-referential animated series that I've ever seen. If you're familiar at all with Scooby-Doo, you know that it's all about mysteries, and Mystery Incorporated is no different. Not only are there mysteries with each episode, but there's also an overarching mystery that gets started in the very first episode. We will be spoiling everything as we go along, so if you haven't seen Mystery Inc., stop the podcast and come back after you have. So, Carol, when was the first time you saw Mystery Inc., and what did you think? I saw it around the time it aired, if not when it was airing. This isn't as cool as talking about the mysteries, but I love the art design. And in particular, I love the backgrounds and the music. And I thought it was so interesting that they had an overarching mystery. And of course, I appreciated all the horror and science fiction references in the the whole shebang. How about you, Father Malone? 
for me, it wasn't until about maybe I'm going to say about four or five years ago. Now, Mike, you know, I have a, a deep abiding love for Mr. Harlan Ellison. Somehow I missed that he was a participant on the show. Uh, so when I read he was on, I uh, sought that episode in particular out. I just loved how interesting the writing was. It sort of carried me through the first season. So I hadn't really been exposed to the second season until you contacted me and we were going to discuss the the entire series as a whole. But I got to say, like, once I started from the beginning, I'm absolutely hooked. So I've been a fan of Scooby-Doo for years, but something about this particular iteration is kind of spectacular. I think you and I are about the same age. So did you grow up on Scooby? Oh, my God, yes. Scooby has never really gone away. And I do believe you and I are exactly the same age. So he was always a fixture on Saturday morning TV. But more important than that was the sort of mid-afternoon blocks of animation that local television stations would show. So Scooby was always in constant rotation. The original Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, and then the Scooby-Doo movies, the new Scooby-Doo movies, were kind of my bread and butter growing up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was constantly fed a diet of Scooby-Doo my entire life. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar, at least with those iterations of it. Up until the mid-80s, uh, which I, you know, I kept watching every time they rebooted it, uh, I think past that it kind of fell off for me. But this, to me, is as good as it gets. Carol, how about you? Were you a Scooby fan growing up? Uh, my sister was a huge Scooby fan growing up, and she was older than me. So Scooby was always there for me, regardless of whether... Like, it's kind of a moot question when you have an older sibling who loves something. It's just part of your life. But I've grown very fond of it. And it's fascinating to me that we it, it doesn't seem to have the same cultural cachet that, say, Looney Tunes do. It's... um ever present you know like there, i can't think of a time you know like since it first aired that there wasn't some kind of scooby-doo movie or show or whatever happening yeah i guess this is as close as americans get to like doctor who always being on the air or japanese get to ultraman always being on the air as scooby seeming to have been on the air since what 1968 i grew up with scooby I remember really enjoying it. I remember, and I don't think I'm just being hip, but I remember really hating Scrappy-Doo when I was younger and continue to hate Scrappy-Doo today. So I love when they take the piss out of Scrappy-Doo. I was all in for like the Scooby-Doo movie, the live action movie when they made uh, Scrappy the the antagonist, spoilers for Scooby-Doo movie, because I just, I hated him when I was growing up. And it, it took me a long time before I realized seeing like Speed Buggy, I would be like, oh, well, that's weird. That guy looks just like Shaggy and just like how... Hanna-Barbera cannibalize themselves to just keep doing these like mystery teams and stuff. But um, yeah, it was always just kind of a part of my childhood and then it faded out. And then I think uh, my wife was watching the cyber chase movie on TV and the gang in that gets transported into a computer game. And there is a moment where the gang and that meets the old gang as soon as they made these like self-referential remarks can someone help us <gasps> Sykes, you're me <laughs> 
and like you're me. Oh, you're the characters in Eric's video game, and you're from the real world. Jeez. Did I really wear that years ago? That jacket with that skirt? Hmm. Nice ascot. <laughs> Works for me. This is really cool. I really enjoyed this. And then watching things like Zombie Island and stuff, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of hip. And then I would actually look for the standalone movies. And it wasn't until, gosh, I think I was just kind of walking through the room and my wife was watching uh, Mystery Incorporated. And I can't remember if it was the Twin Peaks episode or what it was, but there was just something where there was a cultural reference that I just glommed right onto. And I was like, wow, this is a really smart show. And after that, I was hooked. And I think I've watched the whole Mysteries Incorporated through. I know I've watched several episodes several times, but I think I've watched it through now like maybe three times. And it never disappoints. It's It's got a rewatchability factor, which you wouldn't think Scooby-Doo would have. Or should, for that matter. Yeah, I think for me, it was the, the Harlan Ellison, Hatecraft, Chargard, Gothicon episode I happened to cross the first time. And I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing. Now, subsequently, like cartoons have sort sort of followed along that way. So it would be less surprising for me now to see... I mean, it's always going to be surprising to see Harlan Ellison in a cartoon that he would voice himself <laughs> and let himself be portrayed like that is amazing to me. And that he would come back two or three years later, whenever they were producing it and reprise his character. And it, it was delightful for me to hear Udo Kier, just that, that choice of a villain that they went with Udo Kier is just great. Well, and I love that Jeffrey Combs was playing HP Hatecraft in that. I was like, oh, that's really smart. And just all the voice casting I was super impressed with. And I'm such a Patrick Warburton fan that him as Sheriff Stone, Bronson Stone, and just the way that he would get completely unhinged. And when Warburton goes from that sonorous, deep voice to the upper register hysterical, it cracks me up every single time. And I love just how incompetent he was and that he has to be incompetent for Mystery Inc. to be able to do their job. The only other show that I think approaches the level of uh, of the sublime that this show achieved uh, would be the Venture Brothers, which he was also a major portion of. Kind of remarkable. Like in that case with Venture Brothers, they're kind of taking the piss out of all of the genre tropes. At the same time, almost kind of looking down on it, which is being an ironic Gen Xer, uh, I really respond to. At the same time, like with this show and his participation in it and that sort of connection to that other program, this represents just the apotheosis of how good a self-referential thing can be without necessarily look, looking down the nose at its material. I, I totally agree with you. Patrick Warburton across the board is always welcome and uh, particularly when he gets apoplectic. Expand on the Venture Brothers thing. Because I rewatched the ending of Mystery Inc. this afternoon before the show, and it had also reminded me quite a bit of Venture Brothers. It, it comes into some of the same territory. It has some of the same referentiality. It has some of the same darkness and some of the same sense of humor. And what's really interesting to me is that it's still a children's show, and it's dealing with all these things, and they managed to land their happy ending. If it was a show like Venture Brothers that was for adults, they might just go ahead 
and have a totally nihilistic or pessimistic ending, but they can't do that with tweens and, and younger teens. So they have to have their happy ending where everything works out. And it does. It does work out. You do buy it. They manage to earn their happy ending. And I find that really fascinating with, you know, like they bring in the end of the world and they bring in Nibiru and they bring in their version of Cthulhu several times and everybody gets their happy ending at the end of the show. And I think that's kind of a remarkable feat of writing. When that version of Professor Pericles, the Udo Kier character, and Cthulhu, the mashup that they have at the end, when he starts popping people into his mouth and eating them, I'm just like, wow, uh, I forgot about this. I forgot how dark this show goes. <laughs> but you're right, they do manage to redeem themselves at the end. So it's like, it's not the it's all a dream kind of an ending, thank goodness. It's not Patrick Duffy in the shower. But it manages to have its cake and eat it, too. And then suddenly we realize that we're actually in a prequel to the entire rest of the series. So it's like they they take so many things and mash them all together. And it's just remarkable to me that they're able to take this relatively simplistic cartoon from the late 60s, where it was, you know, a group of teenagers going out and solving mysteries with their talking dog and managed to actually weave together all this stuff. And that, you know, rewatching it again for this show, I was like, oh my God, they set up the mystery in the very first episode. They're talking about the treasure and the way that the city sank into the ocean and all of this stuff right in that first thing. And it's not like they drop it. They're just like little hints throughout that entire first season. And then the second season, I was like, oh God, now this is going to be all about the mythology and we're just going to get into that. Nope. Nope. They don't. They manage to balance out between kind of standalone episodes and then adding the mythology at the end or the beginning. And it's just so cleverly written. It's a remarkable feat to weave everything in as early as they did. But as far as the darkness that they delve into at the end and then kind of pulling back and giving us the happy ending, it never feels unearned. Which, which, as you said, like, it, it, it isn't Dallas where, oh, it was all a dream. It makes complete and total sense that we're going to now pull you into the universe you've already had with Scooby-Doo. It's a remarkable piece of writing. The fact that we get to go as dark as we're given and then pull back to the series that we've always known – is just kind of staggering in a way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I think this is a remarkable piece of entertainment. I appreciate that in doing this too, and like as Mike says, setting themselves up for the the current stuff, like the current gang. We live in a morass of writers stuck in justifying continuity. They are making an argument, like, and obviously they're not making an explicit argument. But they're saying, we like how Scooby-Doo operates. We like how we can drop these same characters in any universe, and it works. They can be with the Harlem Globetrotters. They can be with Vincent Price. They can be with Alvin <laughs> Ellison, and it works. And we're not going to spend our time figuring out the continuity for you. So we're going to come in at the end, and we're going to tell you about string theory and alternate universes, and you can live with all these joyous different takes on the Scooby-Doo gang and all the people they interact with, because that's what you want anyway. 
well, they're so respectful of those other series. And it's just so wonderful how they work them in. Like, I was talking about those standalone movies, and it's like, okay, so I knew the Hex Girls. I wasn't familiar with Vincent Van Gogh, but then my wife is like, oh, yeah, there was a show called The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and he was in that. So I went back and I watched that, and I was like, oh, okay. And it was, it was a little cheesy, but I liked the Vincent Van Gogh character, and I was so glad when he starts showing up on TV and they're watching Vincent Van Gogh movies, and then when he actually comes into the show in the second season. I was like, oh, okay, this is really nice. Just that they have these nods going through it, and none of it feels like any kind of lip service. It's just like little mentions here and there, or like really clever integration of things where, you know, you're, we've mentioned several times this whole idea of the HP Hatecraft and Harlan Ellison. To have both of those things going on at the same time in one episode, to have HP Hatecraft and the Miskatonic Institute and have Harlan Ellison there and have um, Velma such a huge fan of his and, and work all of those elements elements into that one particular show, every single show seemed to be as clever as far as taking disparate elements, remixing them, and bringing them back out together in a really cohesive stew. It's not just like, oh yeah, well, here's a nod, here's a throwaway thing. I think the only throwaway gag that happens in the show is one that made me laugh out loud. It's completely unearned, but I absolutely love it when Sheriff Stone is cleaning out his desk or he's got something going on and he finds the puzzle box from Hellraiser. This is how it works. I impound, and after 30 days, I keep. It's supposed to be evidence. Listen here, Miss Fancy Nancy Goody Pants. I can do anything I want because I'm Sheriff Bronson Stone. And this is all my stuff. Even this stupid puzzle box, which doesn't seem to have any use whatsoever. Boring. Who the heck can that be? Completely unearned, complete non-sequitur, opening up the door and having Pinhead's voice come through the door. He closes the door. That's the end of that entire segment, but sure did make me laugh like crazy. This show in particular of any reboot of any series or movie series, it never approaches what's come before in a negative way. It, It really embraces all of it which is a remarkable feat, not to mention that the majority of American humor in the past 20 or so years has been based on just referential, where it's enough to mention something that we know. I don't know what's more questionable, your pitching arm or Bill Clinton's integrity. And that's the joke. That's the joke. Whereas here, they've integrated the joke so specifically into what they're trying to achieve, sometimes where the reference is almost non-existent in an episode. But that joke in particular, the the sort of sheriff having the lament configuration sitting on his desk, and he's like, this doesn't make any sense. But it pays off. And if you get that joke, great. And if you don't, it really doesn't impact your experience of the episode. There's a level of not necessarily nerd appreciation, but, you know, just as a a fan of the genre, if you're going to get the joke, great. And if you don't, it's not going to detract from your experience as a viewer of the show that you're currently engaged in. 
I absolutely find remarkable with this particular series. Yeah, it is such a love and such a a good balance of people in suits versus actual supernatural. And I like that there's that mix as well, and that it's not just, okay, here comes the reveal, here comes the meddling kids line, you know, which was so, so rote in the very first series. I do love the original, original series, but in this, they're, they're playing it up, you know, and they're really making a point to do these things. And then they're bringing back some of their criminals, which is fantastic. Like the, the little girl who constantly is snorting phlegm and spitting the way that they're able to bring her back or bring back hot dog water. I absolutely love hot dog water. And I love in the second uh, season when she actually replaces Daphne and they change the entire opening credits to have hot dog water there. Wasn't that spectacular? Hot Dog Water is such a great, great character. Carol, you mentioned the design. I love the design of her character. I love that she's in mustard and ketchup colors. I love that her hair, uh, the the ribbons in her hair, the barrettes are very complimentary to what is going on with uh, Velma's hair. And just that whole relationship between the two of them, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, she's pretty put together for the kid that's picked on in school. Very smart. And that they actually bring her back as a hero in the second season and then recast her as a villain, but she's actually secretly a hero. I mean, she's got like the most depth of any character who isn't one of our main five. She has the most complicated arc, like more complicated, I think, even than the main characters. I've heard some people complain about Fred because Fred is so obsessive in this, his whole thing about traps, but my God, I love it. And I love just how Frank Welker, who's been doing this character's voice since 1968, just is so into the voice and just, he is so excited all the time and his emotional journey through this of his father, not being his father, how disillusioned he is when he loses Daphne, just all of that stuff. When he finds his quote unquote real parents and they end up betraying him. I mean, it is, it's remarkable that he can go through this journey as well. Yeah. Let's talk about Frank Welker for a second, because There came a point in the mid-90s where voiceover actors kind of got shunted aside for whatever celebrity that studios thought were going to be a draw for for an audience. I've always loved voiceover actors, and Frank Welker is probably at the top of the heap. And the fact that some 40 years later, 30, 30 to 40 years later... Frank Welker is still able to imbue that character with the same level of teenage exuberance that we got back in 1968 is kind of amazing. Not, not to mention the fact that like in the finale of season one, where Fred has been completely disillusioned by everything that's going on, his reactions to what's going on is absolutely heartbreaking. Like, you couldn't do it with a regular actor in a live-action film. His emotional reactions to what's going on, like, it's it, it's really, I don't know, man, it staggers me. Like, that he's able to continue to do it to this day. And he's still doing Fred. There have been many iterations of 
Scooby-Doo since Mystery Incorporated, he's always the guy to go to because who else is going to voice that particular character? But what's amazing to me is no matter what the iteration, he's always spot on. Like he always delivers what that particular series needs of the character. Um, not, not even pointing out the fact that Whatever character Frank Welker is doing, it's always distinct. You find that most guys who do voices in the cartoons all uh, are can do many impressions of people and sounds and all that. But uh, other cartoon characters, I do. Uh, I do uh, Baby Kermit on the Muppet Babies. And Skeeter, don't forget Skeeter. Now she's a little girl, and he never mentions her because he's a male chauvinist frog. Yeah, I guess I am a male chauvinist frog. Hmm. <laughs> He has a level of control of that voice that is just remarkable. He's voiced animal characters, like, over his career. <laughs> like, sometimes I'm listening to a, a cartoon, and I go, is that Frank Welker? And then I have to immediately go on IMDb and find out. But it's always him. He's always so remarkable. Like, is there an special Academy Award or Emmy we can give this guy? Because... What a remarkable career. He really informed all of our childhoods and is going to continue until the moment he's in the grave, just completely baffling us with his abilities. While I was rewatching some of Scooby-Doo Mystery Inc., I took a break by watching uh, Scooby-Doo and Batman the Brave and the Bold. And it was not off-putting, but like the shading of Fred in... Scooby-Doo Mystery, Inc., and the kind of darkness and emotional depth that he's getting with Fred there is remarkable. And then to listen to the slightly different Fred of Scooby-Doo and Batman the Brave and the Bold, which is like much more shenanigans and hijinks and Bill Finger's 1960s Batman fun, it made my brain go a little askew. Just even that slight shading in the character. So it's like still Fred. It's still that world. He still has his depth. But they're different, and he's bringing what needs to be done for each, like you say, iteration of Scooby-Doo and Fred himself. The man has 850 credited roles on IMDb, which might be the most I've ever seen. I'm sure there are people with more, but they make jokes about this on uh, We Hate Movies, which is when they're talking about cartoons, or they'll even just talk about... and I want to say, like, he might have had something to do in Spawn. I mean, there are things where, why would he even be involved with this? But he'll do, like, sound effects with his mouth or just additional animal sound. He's not even doing a voice. He'll just do a noise. And he gets this credit for stuff. And, yeah, it's it's crazy that he is able to bring so much difference to this. Because... God, he, he was Azrael's voice in the Spurs movie. I mean, it's just like all of these different roles that he is able to do. And when he does another voice, you don't know that it's the same guy that's doing Fred. It, it's not like some of the voice actors where you're just like, oh, well, obviously that's the same person. Like I saw a uh, interview, and this is no offense to this gentleman, but I saw an interview with the guy who does um, Morty's voice on Rick and Morty. And basically, and he does Rick's voice as well. And basically, every voice that he does sounds like Rick and or Morty. And it's no difference. Like, oh, I did this voice for this cartoon. I'm like, sounds like Morty. Okay, B, then it's a date. See you tomorrow. I mean, not a date date because, you know, why would I want that? (laughs) 
Uh, Adventure Time was fun. That was Penn Ward. He came on an episode and then I think, I feel like on the episode, I was like, come on, Penn, put me in this show. I might've been doing that. I just did this, the screamy voice. This castle is in unacceptable condition. Unacceptable. That was fun. It was fun to be that character because I knew there was a lot of stuff that that character was involved in, a lot of Easter eggs, like, throughout the course of the season. So, um, that was really cool to be that character. Blinden, Blenjamin, Blandon! How could you not know my name after you ruined my life? Hot Streets was my friend Brian's show, and I did the voice of Chubby Webbers. You fix the helicopter. Murder powder? Murder powder is for doggies who fix helicopters. Sounds like Morty, but with Welk, you're just like... Fucking A, I could never tell that he's these multiple characters, that he's both Scooby and Fred so often is really remarkable as well. Season two begins with the Crybaby Clown, which, believe me, I, which I love as an episode, right? Uh, and it's follow-up. Over the past 25 to 30 years, uh, people have been praising Mr. Mark Hamill, whom I love, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make anyone angry. But every character that Mark Hamill does is the Joker. One way or another, I always know it's him. I always know it's some variation on that particular character. And that's no knock against him. He's doing what he can. Nevertheless, I know it's him. Frank Welker, over his career, has staggered me with the amount of differentiation he can do with that voice. And just like you said, like sometimes it's not even a character speaking. It's a noise. If you've heard a parrot speak in the past 30 years in a movie, I guarantee you that was Frank Welker. Like, his range is so incredible. Like, there was a time when actors found their niche, and that was voice acting. And you could count on them every single time for this kind of level of performance. And, I mean, that goes all the way back to the golden age of cartoons where you would have people who could just do anything with their voice. And it always sort of amazed you as a, a viewer or a listener. That's a, a a particular set of skills that is sort of going away where we just are interested in the particular voice we already know giving us something. Fred Jones, Scooby-Doo and Megatron. Can you get three more different voices? And he's been the voice of Megatron forever. I am Megatron, leader of the Decepticons. But the actual deep, deep voice, that went to Soundwave, which was Barry White. <laughs> I am Soundwave. Talk in a monotone, and then add the electric on it, and you get Soundwave. But I like doing the voice of Caves, and I am your leader. Yes, Malish. How about Dr. Claw back in, uh, with, for Inspector Gadget? Let's get the celebrity to do the voice. Won't this be cute? The Scoob movie that they just put out is really guilty of that. Like having Mark Wahlberg be the Blue Falcon. I was just like listening to it and getting distracted because I just, I kept picturing Mark Wahlberg in the recording studio. And I don't necessarily do that when it comes to 
these other voice actors. Now, Mindy Cohn, I grew up with her on Facts of Life, but she is a wonderful Velma, and she's been doing Velma for years, so it doesn't feel like it's celebrity stunt voice casting. And having Linda Cardellini be uh, Hot Dog Water is such a nice nod to her role back in the live-action Scooby-Doo's as Velma. Again, the woman that plays Daphne, Gray Griffin, she is another remarkable voice actress, and she has just been, and she's another person with just tons and tons of credits. Having Lillard, who I know has been doing Shaggy for years before he came on to Mystery Incorporated, again, a nice throwback to the movies, and then he moved into the animation, and he has just been a pitch-perfect Shaggy, like, and it was so nice to have Casey Kasem be his father in this version. My God, wasn't that remarkable? As old and tired as he sounds, just knowing it's him and knowing he's there, like it's, it seems like a validation for the series. I mean, in the series alone, there isn't an episode you can't look up what the voices were, and it won't say Daphne and like three other characters. She's really great. Yeah, that is always remarkable to me when they are able to do multiple voices in one thing. And I, I had heard, and I didn't confirm this uh, with Mitch Watson when I talked to him, but I had heard that the main cast, our main five characters before voice actors, since uh, Welker does uh, Freddy and uh, Scooby at the same time, I heard that they all recorded their stuff together in one room. So it wasn't bring this person in, bring this person in. And I think you can really tell that. I think there's such a chemistry between them because they're bouncing off of each other all the time in this. That's a weird phenomenon when you can actually get all of the actors into the same room. But as you said, it it absolutely pays off in something like this where it's supposed to be an ensemble. Having Tom Hanks and Tim Allen record their Toy Story characters months apart in different locations around the United States, like it works. It's it's not a problem. There's something about something like this where – Get those people in the room so they can bounce off each other. That really is uh, amazing to hear. Like, you know, you can tell that they're having a good time and that only makes your appreciation of the performances better. What I loved about Scooby-Doo was the monsters because I was all about the monsters and I'm still all about the monsters. And so I was wondering what monsters you guys liked in this the best. Well, I will say that Crybaby Clown was pretty great. You had brought him up before, and I like that they don't defeat him. And I like that they have, I think he's in maybe two, and then not in one, and then in another. I think he's in three episodes altogether, and I can't remember if it's Clown Clown Something Else Clown, or if it's Clown Something Else Clown Clown. (laughs) But when they are all in that town meeting, and they take the camera back and he's sitting there I'm just like oh god here comes here's the Jaws speech you all know me you know how I earn a living I'm a bad clown stopping me ain't gonna be easy there's no string in a net or catching me like Mano Tika Tia or Redbeard's ghost this crybaby clown swallow your town whole. <laughs> you want your tourism back? You're gonna pay me five million dollars. For that, you get the pacifier, the rattle, the whole darn clown. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what's it gonna be? Me or Mystery Incorporated? Well, sounds like a good deal to me. I'll start passing the hat. So long, Mystery Goofs. Just like it was hitting all those buttons for me. There were times where I was just like, oh my God, is he going to say this? Things, stupid things like, uh, again, going back to the HP Hatecraft episode, that the bad guy is Howard E. Roberts instead of Robert E. Howard. So we've got a nice Conan reference in there. And they're just like, or the, uh, the one where it's the mystery solving um, outing where it's all of the sidekicks solving the mystery. You know, I talked about how similar all of these teams are. And I love that they get rid of the teams and just have the mascots solving this thing. One villain that I liked a lot was the thing that was very much like The Shining, the Overlook Hotel, and having um, the weird wood that uh, makes everybody pass out. And then especially when that little cook who... uh <laughs> who can't speak English and just throws meat at people when he turns into a, uh, a devil. And then I didn't realize until the very end of the episode that every single character, every single potential villain had the same initials. And then that whole thing with Scooby trying to pronounce who the right people were was great. Someone's there. Was it Scoob? Dong Fong? Dean Fang? Dan Flunk? Dean Fong. Uh, I mean, Dan Fink. Dong Fong? No, Fink Dan Dong Fing Flunk. Fluke! Don't worry, Scoob. The use of difficult phonetics aside, the villain could be any one of them. I have two sort of favorite villains. I love the graveyard ghoul just from his design, which was pretty spectacular. I also liked the episode where Vincent Van Gool enlists Scooby and uh, Shaggy to be on his reality show without their knowledge. And then we got a plethora of Vincent Price's villains from his films, particularly because it's a favorite of mine, the repellent Dr. Phobos, as opposed to the abominable Dr. Fives. Seeing that character immediately following a House of Wax character, holy fuck, man. I just, <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, as a fan of the genre, like the fact that they're willing to go to these places and pull these characters in and just change them just enough where it doesn't matter if you know the reference or not. Nevertheless, like, the repellent Dr. Phobos? <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I don't know, that's really spectacular to me. I loved the mutant bee in that, and that, that they're actually hired to scare scare whoever he had invited over to dinner. <laughs> I think one of my most favorite episodes was the one that is the parody of Andy Warhol and uh, the Velvet Underground. The songs that are in there, and especially when Scooby is singing the, the um, All Tomorrow's Parties. <laughs> and what, the name of the band is what? Uh, Sunday afternoon or around one o'clock or something like that? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Gotta wonder what Udo Kier thought of that. Like, did he ever see that? Did he ever see them doing the factory? The entire episode, I just kept I, I, you could ask my wife uh, I just kept saying, oh, man, I hope Lou Reed is the villain. I hope Lou Reed is the villain. <laughs> and that he's so obsessed with polka music. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about the music in, the, in, in, in every episode? Because Please do. I, I'm not even talking about the songs because, I, you know, I, I once I started really sort of fundamentally watching 
uh, every episode, I got really interested in the music and I tried to get my hands on or my, or ears, the, the sort of background music. Unfortunately, whenever you do that, you're going to end up with the songs that are featured, which are fine because the songs are good. The actual incidental background music for this series, I gotta say, man, are as good as anything I've ever heard. I'm still want to track them down and have them like and put them on my phone so I can listen to them because they're so evocative, not only of the particular episode, but just in general, like their versions of tiki music and uh, theremin soaked evocations. And it's so appropriate for every single episode that they have. The main theme for the series is done by Matthew Sweet. Which is a really good theme, no question. And probably the groundwork for that was laid by Mike. I'm sure you were a fan of the back in the early 90s. They released a, a CD called Saturday Morning Cartoons, right? And Matthew Sweet covered the original Scooby-Doo theme. I'm sure that's what inspired these guys to hire him to do the, the original theme. And that theme is great. However. Slayer. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, just the sort of background stuff, There's, it's so evocative. I could easily picture any of the, the background music in this series being laid into any sort of contemporary horror movie and be totally satisfied with it. There is a post that I'm going to post in the show notes, which I found on uh, Cartoon Cade's Fun Zone, which is all about the music of the original Scooby-Doo, which is one of those, like, pretty much anybody who knows the original Scooby-Doo just immediately, like, can hum probably at least three different songs that were in the background of those, just because they used them so often, but also just because they were so evocative at that time. And the level of chicanery and subterfuge that is in this article, this history of this guy trying to get his hands on the music bed for this, so good. I won't ruin it by going into it too much, but long story short, you can get the music through this. And it is really interesting to be able to go back and listen to some of these sessions and just hear all of the different, you know, okay, take five, take six, and just the the little differences. And it sounds like all of this stuff came from one of the earliest recordings because you are constantly hearing, oh, my darling Clementine in it. And I'm just like, okay, that's got to be the minor 49er episode. The fact that the, the sort of major themes, the sort of incidental music, not necessarily the main theme, that we keep hearing throughout the series end up being one of the major villains in the series just playing a guitar, that alone is so amazing. Like, like it, <laughs> I don't know, like he started doing it and I just could not stop laughing because that is such a, I've never seen a series do something like that. That's pretty incredible. The Mr. E character that Lewis Black does the voice for, a very complicated character that he is setting them on their path. He's kind of like the uh, Mr. Bloodhound from the Bloodhound gang. And then he ends up becoming a villain, but then he tries to redeem himself. And then Professor Pericles puts stuff in his spine to paralyze him if he tries to attack Pericles. And just that whole 
amazing thing that they hit on, especially in the second season, but I think there are, again, overtures in the first season of, and especially because, you know, I just talked about the episode where it's all of the mystery-solving gangs, where it's like, okay, not only do we have this mystery-solving gang, but there have been incarnations of them throughout history, which totally reminds me of Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where you get to see, like, the portraits on the wall of, oh yeah, and in this century, it was these characters, and in here, it is this, and then, you know, people have parodied that, and it's like, you know, you see one where it's like, Doc Brown is one of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in a different century, you know, and I just love that they have all of these different groups, and then there's the one episode where they're passing through. Well, it's the Michael J. Anderson episode. It's the the the, the dream, the whole Twin Peaks thing, which again, just scratching an itch that I always have, where they are suddenly in the the Black Lodge and passing through this stuff, and then they're seeing all of the different groups that have come before them, including like the four cowgirls and the talking bull, or the uh, the people on the train with the uh, with Mister Peaches, the talking orangutan. <laughs> It's even better that it's been passing, you know, because there could be a writing station to go into it too deep and then it becomes kind of onerous, but just just laying it out there and moving on. I love it. They'll do like those little quick things like I, I know, uh, Father Malone, you're such a huge fan of Harlan Ellison. I love when they just suddenly like I think it's in the last episode of the first season where they're just like, you know, oh, well, what about Harlan Ellison? Oh, he's at a misanthrope convention. Of course, because where else would he be? Absolutely, he would be there. Oh, my God. To fundamentally not only uh, have a a desire to have Harlan Ellison be a participant in the series, but to really understand what a fucking nightmare he is as a human being and then weave that in to the program is so amazing. And you you have – I mean, you know Harlan was – into that. How could he not be? Uh, I've told this story before on another podcast, but I'll tell it again. When I first moved to Los Angeles back in 1992, I actually went and looked in the white pages uh, of the, you know, the, the phone book. And Harlan Ellison had the balls to actually just leave his number there. And I was a massive fan of his. One night, I worked up the courage, and I thought, I'm just going to call Harlan Ellison. I'm going to talk to him about death bird stories. And I I very hesitantly dialed the number and held the phone to my ear. And after two or three rings, the phone was snatched up, and all I heard was, what? <laughs> and, and I immediately hung the phone up. But huh. to me... That was, that was, that was like him talking to me for three hours about his work, because what else can you expect from that particular man? And clearly, <laughs> the, the writers of this series understood that about him, that of course he's going to go to a misanthrope convention. Where else would he go? <laughs> I don't want to just sit here and go through every reference, but it is so tempting because there are so many and they are so good. But the one I did really want to call out real quick, though, was one that I just I did not get until I was looking at the uh, Scoopopedia, which is the uh, I can't remember what they call the episode, but it's basically a parody of the War of the Gargantuas. Because that song, the words get stuck in my throat song, which they ended up using in another Scooby standalone movie. 
and uh, it gets disrupted almost the exact same way, except it's not like the red and and or orange and green um, wrestlers that are fighting with each other. <laughs> but that song again, you're talking about the music and to use that song and to to play against that movie. I mean, that was one reference that went completely over my head the first time I saw it. I was delighted immediately when I saw it. I figured you would be. You are right there in that kaiju wheelhouse. And now I realize that we're, they could have had the singer get eaten by one of the humongonauts. Because they were, you know, like you said, Professor Pericles Cthulhu was chowing down on folks at the end. If I can mention a, a reference that I also really appreciated, because it was a multiple reference, was the fact that Anytime we move outside of Crystal Cove, where the gang is going to have to travel a bit in order to uh, solve that particular mystery, the Griswolds from the vacation movies are there first. In at least one of the episodes, that's actually Beverly D'Angelo. Clearly, it's not going to be Chevy Chase, but the guy doing the Chevy Chase voice is pretty spot on. I loved that. Like, I just love seeing the family truckster. And it's sort of part and parcel to everything I've been mentioning, which is, if you're going to get this reference, awesome. If you're not, it doesn't matter. It's there, and if you pick up on it, great. And if you don't... Look, you know, there's an episode early on in the first season uh, dealing with toxic waste underneath the city, which is clearly a reference to Return of the Living Dead. In fact, the, the monster that comes out is unequivocally the Tar Man from Return of the Living Dead. If you know it, Great. If you don't, doesn't matter. Here's what's happening. It's a really fine line for a creator of a series to sort of weave these elements in. Whether or not it pays off for you, they're respecting the fact that we as fans of the genre are going to pick up on it. And they're also respectful if you're not that you won't. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't detract. But if it if you do, then it elevates the series that much more. That's such a weird tightrope to walk. And they seem to do that nearly in every single episode. Speaking to that, the economy of the writing on the series, each episode is, what, 23 minutes? The fact that they're able to tell a complete story in each of these episodes, dealing with whatever uh, threat has uh, reared its head... And forward the plot, because it doesn't seem to me that there isn't an episode that doesn't play into the overarching or overarching main plot of the entire series as a whole is so incredible. Like, there, there's never a moment where I didn't think while watching it, like, was that only 22 minutes? Like, it always felt longer without it feeling... You know, sometimes you're watching something and you're like, oh, my God, this is going on for hours. And it's only like, you know, half an hour. <laughs> but in this case, the 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 sort of length of time that you're experiencing is only beneficial. And I had um, an additional thought on your first point about uh, having these genre references worked in where you can either get them or you don't. And it the story will still work for you and it will still be fun and funny and you know, interesting and charming and all those things. And I think that they're working really well with the conventions of writing for children and adding things that will be interesting for adults, which is something that children's shows didn't used to do. And now children's shows and movies are like, oh, well, probably your parents or an adult are watching with you. So we'll put something in for them too. 
And they've sort of taken that into their own new structural thing, like their own new kind of genre where they're like, well, we're going to add things from the stuff and we're going to add things from more of the gargantuas and from HP Lovecraft and from, you know, like really not young kids things, but we're putting it in a young kids context. And so then it's especially funny and, and interesting and entertaining for adults. And then maybe you're seeding, you know, younger kids interest in horror and science fiction later on in their life. But I, I think you learn a skill set and they're using that skill set in a really interesting way. I absolutely love children's TV that is written this way. I mean, I, I remember I used to be a huge fan of Rocky and Bullwinkle. And there were some jokes in there that were so perplexing to me that they would stick in my brain. Kind of like what you're talking about as far as like seeding things for for kids for later on. There were some things that were so stuck in my brain that when I finally figured out the reference, like I could be 18, 19, 22, whatever. I mean, there was one that made a reference. It was a boat encrusted in red gems and it was owned by a man called Omar Khayyam and so when I finally heard Rubiat of Omar Khayyam in a different context than the red encrusted red gem encrusted boat I was like oh my god that's what it is that's the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam Wow. I mean, that was that was a joke that was 15 years in the making in my brain, at least. The insistent squirrel led the way to the only jewelry store in Frostbite Falls. You know what you have here? We were hoping that you'd tell us. This little doll here is composed of ruby. Yes, sir, it's rubies. No, it isn't. It's mine. Well, my gosh, if it's made out of rubies, then... If you're hesitating for me to finish the line, you've got a long wait. And I don't have the guts to say it. Okay, then here goes. If it's made out of rubies, then this must be the ruby yacht of Omar Khayyam. <sighs> there was a, a, a cartoon once where it was a, a Warner Brothers cartoon with Yosemite Sam, who was banging on a door, and, and he was yelling, open the door. And then he turned to the camera and said, you notice I didn't say Richard, which I never understood. And then some 20, 30 years later... I like actually did the research on it and there was a song at the time called Open the Door Richard. Like even back then they were trying to weave in these jokes to hit the adults in the audience that, that the kids weren't necessarily going to get. So like something like Open the Door Richard uh, is at that time very funny. I mean, look, I, I didn't think it was hilarious when I found out, but I was I you know, there was a light bulb that went off over my head when I heard it like, "Oh, that was for the adults in the audience." This series in particular does it in such a spectacular fashion that it only elevates the series in my appreciation. I almost fell off of my couch. Now, I said I've watched this series a few times, but I usually will just like catch back to back. I've watched it three times through, but just like in passing through my living room or whatever, my wife will just like turn on stuff and leave it going all day long. So like I'll walk in and she'll be watching this or she'll be watching uh, what's new Scooby-Doo or just like mindless action film kind of thing. So I forgot how the series ended. I remembered so many of the episodes, but I kept forgetting how it actually ended. So I'm watching it again the other night, and as soon as Nova, 
this character who we really haven't talked about too much, but she's just kind of, you know, she's a little bit of a, um, you know, mystery box type character when she shows up at the very end and starts quoting from Dune. I almost lost my shit because that is one of my most favorite movies and that she is talking about in the year 10191. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> What's so funny, like at the end of that episode, because they set that up at the beginning when Professor Pericles as a sort of Cthulhu character is attacking them and he shields them, I thought, and how can this be? Because Scooby-Doo is the Kwisatz Haderach. There's something to be said for making references as a joke. And there's something to be said for making references that actually play into the episode. I understand that there are a bunch of fans out there of, like, Family Guy. But to me, like, 99% of those jokes are just based on whether or not you recognize the reference. Yeah, I know the glaive is the fucking weapon in Krull. Okay? That doesn't make me laugh. It just makes me go, oh, yeah, I know that. The fact that this series can pull these elements in and somehow make it funny at the same time is such a remarkable achievement. I just kind of stand in awe of it. Speaking a little bit toward what we were talking about earlier, the fact that Scooby-Doo ends up in the Black Lodge in and of itself, like, is it funny that he's doing it? Yeah, I guess. The fact that it's woven into the plot makes it that much funnier. I'm never a fan of just pointing out something that's happening. You know, most of the sort of self-referential movies we've gotten in the past 20, 30 years have relied almost exclusively on that sort of recognition. Whereas, like, you look before at something like, the you know, the films of Mel Brooks – where he was with a film like Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. Yeah, he's playing on the genre. He's expecting you to know the tropes. And the tropes themselves are kind of funny. But when they're woven into the plot that you're given, they become all the funnier. That, to me, is sort of the – not necessarily the ultimate of this series because I think there's a lot to recommend the series above and beyond the humor – but the fact that they recognize that the comedy itself, once spun back into the major plot, are, is going to be funny, never mind the fact that the plot itself is going to be interesting, is a major achievement. And I don't think we've talked at all about how how scary this fucking series is at times. And to me, this is the first time that any iteration of Scooby-Doo has really paid the uh, the the time – and put in the effort to have moments in the series of unease and fright. There are moments in the series, particularly in the first season, not to denigrate the second season, which is also really good, but during the first season where the characters are in peril, and I'm actually frightened for them. Look, I mean, you know, I've been living with these characters for, you know, over 40 years now, and there are moments where I'm like, oh my god, are they going to be okay? I bow in appreciation of what these guys were able to achieve. And and not only that, I'm sorry to sort of fall back on myself here, but, you know, when you go back and look at Twin Peaks, those guys had no fucking idea what they were doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were making up it as they went along. This series is so well plotted and so thoughtful that when they make a reference in episode one of season one, and then it pays off, not even in the first season, but the second season, 
that to me just startles me as a human being that somebody is so forward thinking in their plotting that I don't know. Am I overpraising? Maybe I mean, maybe I am. The makers of Lost could have learned a lot from this show. Lost is the the series that I always go back to as far as in that first episode, I was just like, okay, well, it looks like this is purgatory. And then they did everything that they possibly could in the entire world to make it so that it wasn't purgatory. So when they go back and they say it is purgatory at the end, you're just like, well, fuck you. How? Why did you just waste five fucking years of my life? And you talk about plotting and pacing and, you know, these, these episodes are 22 minutes and they're so tight and packed. I mean, you could take out entire seasons of Lost and you're not going to miss anything. It's so smart. And, you know, you're talking about that there are actual moments of peril in here. I mean, I just, you know, I'm glad I said spoilers that Marcy fucking dies, that hot dog water fucking gets murdered by these Nazi robots. Those Nazi robots are terrifying in the second season. And then they also lead to, again, one of my favorite references, which is super smart because of the Nazi overtones to David's dream from uh, American Werewolf in London. When those creatures break in and they start machine gunning everything, and then they do the exact same thing in, I think it's episode 20 of, of the second season. And then they end up doing the same thing as American Werewolf in London, where it's the dream inside the dream. How great is that, that you're using these Nazi robots and they're actually terrifying and you've got this double fake out and it's a reference. Yeah, man, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And, uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned it sort of before we did the podcast and I was like, oh, my God, I'm so glad somebody else got that reference because the fact that it's in this kid's show effectively is referencing that and referencing it and not not aping it. It's sort of building upon it and using it for their own devices is so amazing. Like, I don't know, these guys, uh, (laughs) whoever was running this series, like, God bless you. I'm a little upset we didn't get a season three, honestly. As satisfying as the ending of the series is where it's like, hey, everything you thought about beforehand, that's totally valid now. Like, I really wanted to see the, the mystery machine and the gang go on these, on this journey to Miskatonic University. I'm a little staggered by the series. It's, it's a remarkable piece of entertainment. So let's go ahead and speak to one of the brains behind the show. Let's take a uh, break here and play an interview with one of the producers of Mystery Inc., Mitch Watson. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. 
Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. I love Mystery Incorporated so much that I've never done an episode on a TV show, but I just want more people to watch it. And I just, I love it to bits. It's funny because when Tony Cervoni and I did the show, we used to say all the time, we're like, well, we really like it. And I don't know if anybody likes it right now, but I think we were always like, but in five years or in 10 years, people are going to like this show (laughs) because Cartoon Network hated it. It's just such an interesting thing because it's, I think it's one of the only things I've ever worked on that is more popular now than it ever was when it first came out, which is very satisfying. I really want to know about you. I'm very curious how you got into the animation business. I had a very sort of odd, long, circuitous route that got me there. Basically, I went to UCLA's film and theater school out here. You know, I'd done a lot of acting, and but basically when I was at UCLA, I was predominantly a writer and started writing plays. My plays were always very sort of odd and, you know, slightly political, but just odd in many ways. I mean, very strange satirical humor. I mean, my I'm heavily influenced by, you know, Monty Python and the Coen brothers and stuff like that. So when I graduated from school... I got invited to join a theater company in Los Angeles called the Actors Gang. Now, the Actors Gang was started by a guy named Tim Robbins, who had also come out of UCLA, but long before I had been there. And then when I graduated, I graduated with a bunch of guys who, you know, they weren't famous at the time, but one of them was Jack Black. I was there when, you know, Jack was there when Jack met Kyle. And then a couple of years later, they formed Tenacious D. You know, some guy, David Silverman, who you may or may not was one of the original Simpsons guys, and he's he's directing movies right now. Anyways, it was a great place for me personally, because these guys were as strange and as weird as I was, really. And so my style of writing fit with them, and we had a great time. And what happened was, during one of those shows, one of the shows that I'd written for them, two guys came and they had they were from warner brothers animation 
I kind of knew one of them because I had done improv comedy with him when I was a kid and he was an adult and he remembered me. And when he saw the play, he was like, hey, I'm working over at Warner Brothers now on a show called Freakazoid. Would you be interested in, in writing an episode for it? And I was, you know, I was in my early 20s. So I was like, I'm, nobody's paying me to do anything writing wise right now. So uh, I said, absolutely. So I went and then it turned out that was a guy named John McCann and his partner was a guy named Paul Rugg. You know, if you're familiar with Animaniacs or Pinky and the Brain or any of that, these are all the guys who did it. He and Paul were doing Freakazoid and they said, come on in and write it. You know, so I wrote an episode for them. At the same time, I was waiting tables forever and then finally, I had a good buddy of mine who was also in the Actors Gang, my friend Keith Farley, who later went on to write the musical, Bat Boy the Musical, which I produced uh, the original version of. Keith's wife was working for a company called Spumco. Now, Spumco was the company that used to be run by John Chris Belusi and where they did Ren and Stimpy. And so she said, hey, there's this company called Klasky Chupo. And at that time, Klasky was predominantly known as being the creators of Rugrats, but they were also the original company that did the very first, the first one or two seasons of The Simpsons before they lost The Simpsons. And The Simpsons went to a different studio. But in the meantime, they picked up another show called Duckman, which was one of the very early adult animated shows. It was on the USA Network. It starred Jason Alexanders. And it was based on a comic book made by a guy named Everett Peck. So anyways, I got hired to be a PA on that show. And that was my sort of introduction to a writer's room and all that stuff. And eventually what happened was over the course of the next two years, I rose up the rank and became the producer on Duckman. And so I was producing on Duckman and then I was freelance writing a lot around town because after Freakazoid, I got a job on Pinky and the Brain and then another one on a show called Nightmare Ned and everything. So I started sort of building my resume as a writer while meanwhile producing. And then I, you know, I eventually left Klasky and I went to DreamWorks when it first opened. And while I was at DreamWorks working on a show, it was a movie actually called Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat that was starring a then relatively unknown actor named Ben Affleck as Joseph. While I was doing that at DreamWorks, down the hall, uh, they were doing a show called Pennsylvania. And it just so happened that once again, Paul Rugg, who had hired me on Freakazoid, was working on Pennsylvania, and then he quit. When the two new people took over, he introduced me, and so then I started writing on Pennsylvania while still producing this other direct-to-video feature. So I got some more jobs under my belt, blah, 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 blah. This went on for years. I eventually ended up going to a place called Carsey Warner, where I produced a, uh, another adult primetime show called God, the Devil, and Bob, uh, which was a very short-lived, uh, I think it was on CBS, uh, adult animated show that had all kinds of controversy because the lead character was God and, it God, and it looked like Jerry Garcia. So anyways, that show got canceled. So I was, in, let's put it this way, I was involved in a lot of shows that got canceled. <laughs> but after my experience on Carsey Warner, at Carsey Warner, on God, the Devil and Bob, and sitting in the writer's rooms once again, and, you know, getting to hang out with some of the writers, I finally went, you know what? Shit, I can do this. I can do this. I can, I can bail on the producing altogether and just concentrate on writing. So I did. So I quit 
And then I just started living off of freelance. And it took a couple of years, a couple of lean years of freelance writing. I eventually then got hired at Warner Brothers on a show called Mucha Lucha by a guy named Peter Hastings. Now, if you know your animation lore, Peter Hastings is the, one of the original sort of creators of um, Thinking the Brain. So Peter and I became friends. And when Peter left and went to Nickelodeon, he brought me over to Nickelodeon to work on a sh new show there called Cat Scratch. So we did Cat Scratch, which was just a, a blast because it was insane, pretty much. And I really loved it over there. And then, and then they put me in charge of a show called Tack and the Power of Juju. So I was, I think, the sixth showrunner. And this was my first show running. This, this was the first show that I had been put in charge of. And it was really, really hard because it was the first CG show that Nickelodeon had done ever in-house. And nobody really knew what they were doing. Everybody was kind of learning on the go. And we were the guinea pig. Our show was the guinea pig. So it was very, very, very hard. And we, many of us refer to it as our, our Vietnam. Everything that could go wrong went wrong, blah, 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 blah. We got the show out. It was received so-so. And, and then I was out of work again. But fortunately, and now, we are, now we're getting up to uh, Mr. Incorporated. Fortunately, I got hired soon after to write the live action movie of Ben 10. Uh, I did that. And while on the set for that movie, I got to know a guy named one of the executive producers who was a guy named Sam Register. Sam and I became friends. And we started working on some projects together that we were going to try to sell. And in the midst of that, Sam got hired to take over uh, running Warner Brothers Animation. Because by this point, Warner Brothers Animation, which was Kids WB at one point, dissolved. You know, animation is interesting. It goes through ups and downs. And so when I started, it was on an upswing and then it went through a dark period Basically, what happened was when DreamWorks started, it started this weird competition between DreamWorks and Disney. And the competition resulted into rates of all the artists and the writers and everyone's just going through the roof while Disney and DreamWorks battled it out to see who could get who kind of thing. And the end result was that everything got way too expensive. And then when movies started to hit the skids and not do so well, suddenly everybody found themselves out of work. So then we dipped again. But then when Sam took over Warner Brothers Animation, it was, it was in that down period. And he basically was given the mandate, I want Revive Warner Brothers, which had been the home to Hanna-Barbera forever. And so the first thing he did was start to look at the old properties. And he called me and he said, hey, I want to revive Scooby-Doo. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, nah, I, I'll be honest with you, Sam, I'm not that interested. I'm, I, I mean, the, obviously the property is great, but everybody, you know, it, it's, you know, it started in 1968. People have a real obsession with it. They love it. You know, they don't like it if people come in and mess around with it, blah, blah, blah. So he was like, well, if you could do anything you want, what would you do? And I said, well, and I was obsessed with the reboot of Battlestar Galactica at the time. And, and I said, well, if I could do something like they did, like is kind of reimagine the property with the same characters and the same motifs, but basically reimagine it structure wise and do it as a, and a do it serialized, do it like an over a story that continues on 
um, which they'd never done before. I said, then I might be interested. He goes, pitch me an idea. So I came in, I met with Tony Cervoni and his partner, Spike Brandt, and the three of us sat down and just started kicking around ideas. And then at some point, Spike, Spike started doing some other stuff, I think, on Tom and Jerry. And so it was really just Tony. It was Tony and I. And we started kicking around this crazy idea. And the first thing that we wanted that we just basically said was, well, what do we know about these kids? And so we started to look at all the old original material on the kids, because one the, when we would just sort of shoot questions back and forth to each other, one of the main questions was, how old are these kids? And everybody had a different idea. Everybody was like, oh, they're in high school. No, no, they're in college. No, 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 they're out of college. So it was, we discovered that there was no consensus as to how old these kids were. So we went back to the original material that had been uh, for the, written for the original pitch and discovered that they were, they were always meant to be high school students. And they were supposed to live in this sort of La Jolla. Now, La Jolla is a beach town out here in California. So I, I believe it was written originally for them to be in either La Jolla or a La Jolla-esque town. And that was how it was originally conceived. And then somehow it changed to Coolsville. I don't know how that happened. But anyways, so, so Tony and I were like, well, shit, let's go back to the original material, you know? Let's do that. So we came up with this idea for this town called Crystal Cove. And then we were trying to think of, well, how can we turn this on its ear and do something different with it? And we hit upon the idea, well, what if, you know, what if this town was literally regarded as the most haunted town in the world? And because of that, it was a major tourist trap. And, and it was really, it was, and it was extremely lucrative for everybody in the town. And the only thing fucking it up was, these four kids and their dog who kept disproving that these things were actually real. So the conceit would be that everyone in the town pretty much hates these kids. They don't like them because these kids keep disproving the mysteries and wrecking the tourist business. And their parents don't like, cause all of their parents, we said, we'll make it so that all of their parents are tied into this in one way. You know, we have Fred's dad's the mayor and uh, Daphne's parents, I think run the, no, no Shaggy's parents run the bank. Daphne's parents are these, it's just, they're, they're super wealthy. I forget what they do. And, um, and then Velma's parents run the actual tour of the town, the tourism part of it. So we thought, okay, we got that. And now what are we going to do with the characters? And we said, well, one of the first things we wanted to do was let's make these kids as, as real as we can make them, you know, in this show, give them true personalities and distinctive personalities. And so we set about doing that. And I think the first one we really, hit upon was Fred. And although it's never said in the show or anywhere, Fred basically has Asperger's syndrome in the show, which is why he's obsessed with traps. We find out later in the series that it has to do with the fact that his mother disappeared and everything. So it's uh, so he has this aspect of his personality, which is always trying to trap and contain things to keep them close so they won't abandon him. But we, so we, we said, okay, we'll put Fred slightly on the spectrum. And then, and the other second, and there was the other second big thing we did was with the Velma character, which was, you know, also a big, something that we never really talked about publicly, but now your timing is really good because I think Tony Cervoni, like yesterday outed it, but basically which you probably, you may or may not have read about, but we had always known from the get go, you know, we looked at all of the, the canon, as they say, all of the websites, everything that they'd said. And, you know, part of the show, too, 
is is a love letter to the fans of Scooby-Doo. If you've watched it, you know that we have references in practically every episode to Hanna-Barbera, to past episodes of the show, to movies and, and things, you know, so a lot of what we did and also older, older Hanna-Barbera characters that never got their due, which would show up in other episodes, you know, that was always part of the intention of the show was to be a real kind of like, okay, this is to let all you guys know who are big fans of Scooby-Doo that Tony and I are fans too. And we want to, yeah, we're going to give you a different show, but we want you to know we have tremendous respect for what came before. So, you know, part of the the sort of lore or legend of the show was that Velma was gay. And it had never been explored, obviously, in any of the shows. And this was 10 years ago, so we couldn't explore it openly. So what what we decided to do was tell it, we knew we were going to get 52 episodes. The show The show had been... They bought the show for, for, oh, there's another part of this story, too, that I'll tell in a second. But the show had been bought for 22 episodes. But it had been bought for British Cartoon Network. And there's a reason I'm bringing that up, and that'll, I'll go into that later. But anyways, but so British Cartoon Network was a little bit, they didn't know what we were doing either. But really what happened was the executive that we were dealing with at British Cartoon Network either got fired or quit about two episodes into the show. We were working without an executive on the show for probably a good dozen episodes, which was fantastic because it lit us. We really, we really got to do a lot of stuff that we probably wouldn't have gotten to do. And one of those things was laying the groundwork for Velma and how we wanted to explore her realizing that she was gay. And so we got a lot of heat from the fans for the way we portrayed Velma in the beginning because they said, oh, she's so bitchy. Why is she treating Shaggy this way? It's not nice. Da 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 da. You know, she's angry. Oh, they're just doing the stereotypical jealous girlfriend thing. And we kept having to hold our tongue because we wanted to say, no, no, we're showing a girl who's, you know, she's conflicted. She doesn't understand why she's having particular feelings and Shaggy doesn't have these feelings and that her feelings aren't quite jiving with Shaggy's. And why is she feeling this way? And, and it was this, we wanted to show the confusion on Velma's part over her, over her own sexuality, sexuality as she's trying to figure it out. And then, and then once we'd sort of established that and then broken them up, then we started to lay in the little pieces of you know, little things like there's a whole episode where she meets a mermaid or who she thinks she's a mermaid and she finds herself having feelings for that mermaid. And then, and then in the second season, we introduced the character of Marcy, who was also named Hot Dog Water who was played by Linda Cardellini, who played, of course, Velma in the original live-action movies. And that was all on purpose. So we always knew that Marcy would be the girl that gets Velma out of her shell, but only after Marcy had gone through her own transformation and stuff like that. And so that by the time we get to the very end of the series, in episode 52, when things reset, to us, it's very, very clear, Velma's gay. Marcy's her girlfriend. And, you know, in the episodes that go beyond this series, these two are a couple. But we sort of we sort of we hint at it when you see Marcy on the bed and stuff like that at the end. But again, it was 10 years ago when we weren't allowed to uh, we, we it was that was verboten. There was no way we were going to be able to talk about that. So anyway, so, so it's kind of stayed in the in the shadows up until yesterday when Tony <laughs> revealed it to the world. So now I can t- now I can talk about it. I mean, so that's how that's how initially Mystery Incorporated came 
to be. And then one of the other things, interesting things that happened was uh, a man named Peter, Peter Roth, who was and still is, I believe, in charge of television at the WB. You know, he he heard our we had to pitch him the first six episodes. And when he was like he saw the stuff about Fred. He was like, well, what are you going to do with that? We're like, well, we're going to do some stuff that, you know, background Fred's history and whatever that we don't know. And he's like, and it was Peter Roth who said, you know what you should do? We should find out that Fred's parents or Fred's dad is not his dad. And we're like, oh, that's a good idea. And, and we're like, can we do that? You know, and, then we're, and then so we started talking about these ideas that, you know, and that was sort of how the whole that was how part of the prior Mystery Incorporated was born because when we heard that we were like oh cool and we started we went back again and we started that was when we started sort of layering in at least is my memory of it how we started layering in the idea that there had been past mystery incorporated and that they had disappeared and um and then we find out of course that you know that fred's dad was all part of that and then we brought in professor pericles which was we came up with this part of the lore that we created early on was that there was an evil that lurked in this town because there was a town in california that did fall into the sea and disappear and nobody knows why and we thought that was a really interesting story so we stole aspects of that story and then we said but why you know do we want to address the whole talking dog thing and we de- we decided that we didn't really want to sort of get into any you know real explanation as to why but we did then work it into the sort of the lore of the evil that lurked beneath Crystal Cove and that the evil needed an animal host in order for it to be reborn on this plane of existence, you know. And, you know, a lot of this is if you're fans of I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft. So there's a lot of Lovecrafty and stuff. In fact, we did an entire send up of Lovecraft in one episode uh, called The Call of um, the call Chargar Gothic on yeah the the beast that hath no name. If you watch that episode, there's tons of stuff in that one. I mean, there was there was a Lovecraft parody. We also did a pair in that one. We were playing with the guy who created uh, Conan the Barbarian, Robert e., uh, Howard e. Roberts, um, and then Harlan Ellison, of course, was in there uh, as well because I knew Harlan at the time, and we had. Yeah. And we had wanted, we had first talked about trying to get Stephen King and then it was, nobody could figure out how to get a hold of him really. So then I said, well, I know Harlan Ellison. And they're like, Harlan, you do? I'm like, yeah. I said, I don't know if he'd be interested in doing it, but I could ask him. And so I did. And he was, he couldn't have been more excited to do it. He was, he was like a little kid. You know, that's how we started building the lore. And then in the second season, uh, a guy named Mike Ryan came on board the show because I was at that point, still running Scooby, but also running a new iteration of Batman for Warner Brothers. So we brought Mike in, because at the time, you have to also remember, too, that this is, the, way that, the way that Mystery Incorporated was done, we had no writing staff on that show. So pretty much the entire, it was ba- the, the process of creating and writing that show went like this. Tony and I, we'd look at the schedule. Tony and I would go to lunch. We'd start talking about the story and then I would just, I would throw ideas at Tony and he'd throw them back at me. And then while we did that, Tony would sketch out the monster that, they would, that we were going to use that week. And we usually go to lunch and have a couple of these lunches. And then I said, all right, I think I got enough material. I'm going to go off and write the outline. And that's how the entire first season was done. 
yeah, I would write the outlines or a loose outline, and then we would bring in a freelance writer uh, to do the script if I didn't write it. And that was the entire first season was done that way. The second season, we hired Mike Ryan, who's a, a very good friend of mine and also a great writer. And he came on as the story editor to handle more of the heavy lifting in terms of the writing. And then the second season was basically created by Mike and myself and Tony, again, getting drunk in Mike's office after work because it was the only time that we had because we were all working on different things. Tony, I don't know what Tony was working on, but I was working on Batman and Tony was working on something else. And Mike was trying to get the show up and go. And so we just sit in Mike's office and drink scotch or whatever. And then we created the whole season before we even began writing. We had to create, we created all 13 episodes. We wrote out all 13 episodes, just like we'd done the first season. And we, so we knew where all the storylines were going to go and what the arcs were going to be and how everything was going to pay off. And when we started the show, we always knew that it was only going to be 52 episodes. And we always knew that we were going to reset in episode 52, that the, that the entire show, the, the both season was, would be revealed to be a prequel. It took place before the original series was the idea. And we knew that going in. So we sort of, we, so we were able to plan ahead for it. But in the second season, Mike Ryan brought in a lot of the, um, the stuff about Nibiru and the planets lining up and all of that craziness because Mike was really into that. So, so we took that and we incorporated that into uh, the stuff that we'd had from the first season. And then we started building it out. We were like, okay, well, we've explored the original Mystery Incorporated. So now we need to go back. If we're going to go back in history, it means there must have been more of these mystery solving groups as well. So we started to create those. And I think we created four or five of them going all the way back to the Egyptians, something like that. So we just kept building the lore based upon what we had in the first season. But that's pretty much it. That's how the show, that's how the show was created. And we didn't you know, there's a lot of tons of movie references, especially horror movies, because I'm a big horror movie fan. Um, and then, you know, Mike loved sort of crazy science fiction. So we got that in there. And then Tony, you know, Tony Cervoni is one of the great Hanna-Barbera guys. He just he knows everything. He and Spike. And so Tony knew a lot of the history of Hanna-Barbera, which is why if you watch the second season, you'll see that there's characters like we brought in the original version of Scooby who was from a different TV show called, it was about a whale. I think it was called Moby Dick. It was this thing about these two kids and a whale, and, they're, and they had a pet sea lion by the name of Scooby. That was where they had stolen the name. So we said, well, fuck it. Let's just do an episode based with them in it. So we did it, you know, and, um, and I think we implied that their fathers were the two of the guys from Sequest who were never around. But it was the same thing we did. We did the Blue Falcon you know, parody. We did the Mystery Solvers Club, which was based on, in doing our research on the show, we discovered that, you know, Hanna-Barbera had cannibalized Scooby-Doo multiple times over the years, you know, with uh, Captain Caveman and, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Speed Buggy, the Funky Phantom. We said, what if we just did an episode that made fun of all of those groups? That was the Mystery Solvers were all the actual ripoff teams disappear and only the sidekicks are there to solve the mystery, uh, which became a big fan favorite episode. I love that you changed the animation style in that episode too, to make it the old flat did, animation. Yeah. Nice to catch. Nice of you to catch that. A lot of people don't catch that. Yes. 
we went back and used the original old animation style. And I mean, that was kind of the fun of doing that show is that we were given a lot of, we were given a lot of leeway to do what we wanted to because Cartoon Network, basically what happened was when the show premiered on Cartoon Network originally, it was, it was very popular, but it also premiered against Adventure Time. And Adventure Time was an in-house Cartoon Network show. Although Warner Brothers and Cartoon Network are owned by the same company, they function as two separate entities. What I was told, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it sounds like it's true. Because we were beating Adventure Time in the ratings, they pulled the show off the schedule and then put it on at a different time. And what ended up happening with Mystery Incorporated was they pulled it off the schedule. I think we, they finally counted it 13 different times. They just kept pulling it off and putting it on in different places until people couldn't find it anymore. And they sort of gave up. And so the show during its initial run was not considered successful because it was being just shuffled around and nobody was watching it. And then, I mean, and then Cartoon Network would do trailers for it that would reveal the villain. And we, we just, it was, I mean, I can't say for sure they were sabotaging it, but it always felt like they were sabotaging it. But what happened was two things. One, they put it up on Netflix and it became immensely popular on Netflix. It was like it was hugely popular on Netflix. And then they just, then they I found this out later. They had a they had a meeting with the marketing departments from all the Cartoon Networks from around the world. And it turned out that Mystery Incorporated was at that time, their most popular show all over the world, except for the United States. And they were like, why is this happening? Why is it that this show is popular everywhere but the United States? And that was when they found out that the show had been pulled off the schedule 13 different times and moved around. And when they asked them why they had done that, no one had a good answer for it. You know, they kind of looked like basically like idiots. And then since then, it has just gained and gained and gained in popularity because for a long time, you just, when it, on the initial run, nobody could find it. So nobody knew where it was. And then when it came up on Netflix, people could finally see it. And then they started binge watching it to get, and then they started, and they were able to binge watch all the episodes together because that was another thing too. Cartoon Network had a habit of throwing stuff out of order. And that, and that show, you couldn't really do that with. But when you could watch it all in order, People suddenly were like, oh, look what they're doing and look at how it all ties together and da 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 da. And then people really just discovered it. And then, you know, and it, and that it took about five years, but then people finally started really getting into it. And now I think it's back up on Netflix again. So people are getting into it again. And there's not a month that goes by that I don't get word from somebody who's seen it and just like, I love this show. And gosh, I wish you could make more of them. And, Blah, blah, blah. And just so you know, we were supposed to make a third season. We started working on the third season and then, but it got canceled. Again, Cartoon Network, they just didn't like it. It wasn't what they wanted. And uh, they wanted, you know, they wanted a funny, silly, goofy show with Scooby Snacks. If you watch a lot of the first season, by the way, you'll notice that Scooby Snacks are almost never mentioned. And that was on purpose because I, because I was like, I don't want, I was, this was me being like, I don't want to show all about some freaking dog just eating Scooby snacks all the time. We got some notes finally where they're like, you need it. We need more Scooby snacks. So we, we little by little put them back into the show, but we, we were trying to sort of stay away from a lot of those more goofy tropes, but you know, eventually 
you know, eventually you kind of realize that people really like, some people really like those tropes. So we started to put them back in a little bit, but for the most part, we were able to keep what we wanted to, you know, we got a lot of pushback on the way they dress because we dressed, even though the show technically, you know, we never say when the show takes place, but you know, it's sort of a, a mishmash alternate universe of technology and non-technology and, but they all, all the kids wear, they're wearing their exact same outfits that they wore in the 1968 version. And the reason for that is because it was always meant to be a prequel. You know, we cheated, but then see, that was, we, the, our out was of course that everything resets at the end. So we could have them using phones and computers and stuff like that. You mentioned the um, British Cartoon Network and that that played a, a part in this. How does that play a part in the, the story of Mystery Inc.? Because it was originally, I think they originally tried to sell it to the American Cartoon Network. And the American Cartoon Network either passed or I'm remembering incorrectly. But all I know is they were eventually, they were only, they were only able to sell it to, uh, to British Cartoon Network. That was who wanted it. Because I don't think the U.S. Cartoon Network was, they didn't really care. So that was how the show initially got made. It was being made for British television, which was why we were allowed to explore themes and character stuff that we normally wouldn't be allowed to explore. As I said, the executive that we were working with uh, got fired or fired or quit. Never, I'm still not sure. And uh, so then the only person giving us notes, believe it or not, was the standards and practice guy in Britain. But the standards and practice guy in Britain turned out to be a huge fan of the show. He loved all the stuff that we were hiding in the episodes because each episode, there's stuff hidden throughout all the episodes. There's literally, there's East, that show is just, it's all, there's a ton of Easter eggs. And the, the, the standards and practice guy in Britain got into the habit of trying to find them all. And so when he would, and you know, you know, you know, about, you know, standards and, pra- standards and practices are the guys who look at it to make sure that the content is going to be okay to be broadcast that we're not like, you know, using foul language or, you know, doing any kind of humor that's really derogatory or anything like that. So anyway, so he would give us his notes. And then at the end of his notes, he would give a list of all of the Easter eggs that he had found in the scripts and uh, to see if he'd gotten them all. And then sometimes, and sometimes he would, and then sometimes he wouldn't. And he absolutely loved it when we could fool him. Uh, He would when we would go, he'd send us his little list and we'd go, yeah, you got four, but you missed these two. And he would be like, ah, oh, damn it. He was great because he really loved that aspect of it because I'm sure that he, you know, his job wasn't, you know, who, I don't know how fun a job can be where you're going through a script and telling people that you can't do things. He really got into being able to find these sort of hidden clues throughout the script. And I think, I think because of that, he became one of our biggest allies on the show. He was a real fan. I never met him personally, but I did speak with him. I think we, we chatted over the phone. We certainly chatted over email, but he loved finding all of our little clues and all of our little hidden things and thinking that, you know, and we, cause we'd warn him ahead of time. All right, there's a bunch in here. Let's see if you get them all. And then he would find them and he'd be, he'd be so proud of himself uh, that he'd found these ones and then get like, you know, he was always surprised when we would get one past him that he hadn't found because he had a really good working knowledge of, uh, you know, science fiction and movies and and that kind of stuff. So um, that became real fun for us and him as well. But that's the way it pretty much went until we, until Warner brothers, because like I said, we were one of the first shows that came under the new Warner brothers under Sam 
And so there wasn't very many executives there at that time. I think it was just Sam and, and a guy named Peter Girardi. And then what happened was they hired some new executives. The new executives came in and they looked at the show and you know, it didn't really change it that much, but they did pull us back in some places. Like you can't, like we had a, it was a gag that we did the, where speed buggy, I think they think speed buggies drowned in a pool and the woman who was riding him, she tried to give him mouth to mouth by blowing on his tailpipe. And, you know, there was the feeling that that was too sexual, you know, it was, it was stuff like that. So I don't remember if we got that joke in or not. It was things like that. So we, we started to have, we had to pare back a few things here and there, but for the most part, the show didn't change that much because it was already so set that they couldn't change it. That's how Cartoon Network Europe or uh, in, uh, British Cartoon Network factored into the whole thing. And when we were running into all the trouble with Car the Cartoon Network United States, we were just like, fine, pull it. We don't care. We'd rather it show in Europe anyways. If you guys aren't going to appreciate the show, at least let it show where you know people do. It was one of those things where you work really, really hard on something and you're super, super proud of it. And then forces completely beyond your control pretty much silo it. There was nothing we could do. It was it was uh, it was people we didn't know who had decided that they didn't like the show and they just yanked it off the schedule. It's very very disheartening, but thank God for Netflix that it it, it revived it completely revived it. I think I ran across it when my wife was watching it and I happened to be walking by the TV and immediately saw the Twin Peaks influence on it in the second season. Oh yeah, we hired the actual guy the fellow from the red room, the the man from another place, we hired the actual guy to do it. And then, um, he wasn't that he, he I don't think he had that good a time doing it <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, which is cause he was supposed to, he was supposed to end up in the final episode as well. I don't think he, he wouldn't do it or he wanted too much money. I think he wanted too much money. So that was why we got Harlan Ellison to do it again. Cause Harlan was just game. Harlan was totally into it. There's also, um, there's Werner, I mean, there's a Werner Herzog Fitzcarraldo episode. If you remember that, if you probably, I'm sure you caught it, you know, the, when they're, they're, the, they find the, the boat on top of the mountain and, and even the guy who, the, even the, 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 the undead, uh, whatchamacallit? Conquistador the was. soldier that comes out. <laughs> the Conquistador, that's right out of Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, Eligere. So that, I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that we did. And I have I have a good I've you know I've I've some friends a lot of friends you know work in various capacities in television. And one of my one of my friends who's a showrunner on a bunch of different things, he was like, "I'm watching it with my kids," and up comes a Fitzcarraldo reference. He goes, "What the hell are you doing putting a Fitzcarraldo reference in a children's show?" And I'm like, uh, you know, why not? Why the fuck not?" That was I mean that was great fun for us to do that, um, all of that stuff, because we knew the kids weren't going to get it, but we knew that the adults watching with their kids would get it. And that was, you know, that's always been almost everything I've worked on. That's always the goal is because I have kids too. And there is nothing, nothing worse than watching television with your kids, watching cartoons. And it's just this mindless, horrible garbage that you just you want to gouge your eyes out you know you princess stories or, or whatever you know i just want because i have two daughters i just want to kill myself so the goal is always make something that at least the parents who are watching stuff with their kids are entertained to and not being driven totally insane that's one of my mandates as a as a uh, a content creator is to try to make something that the, that the parent the adults can watch as well as the kids because i've found 
in watching stuff with my kids that it's very, very hard to find that. You know, it's why I love Pixar movies and and those kind of things, because those movies are great for adults as they are for kids. And there are some TV shows that still like Hilda. I, I like Hilda quite a bit. And my kids love Hilda and, and other things like that. But there, there's not enough of them, in my opinion, uh, that because there is a weird thing in children's animation sometimes, which is of, you know, oh, we can't do that because kids aren't going to understand it. And I'm kind of like, and my attitude has always been, so, so what? If the kid doesn't know what that word is, they can ask their parents and then they learn a new word. That doesn't sound awful to me. You'd be surprised. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Some of the pushback. I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'm very curious what some of the actual voice talent thought of this, especially somebody like a Frank Welker, who has been doing Fred Jones for 40, 50 years at this point. So when we were initially doing it, one of the big hurdles that we had to get over was Frank Welker, because Frank was the elder statesman of the show. You know, a lot of the other, like Gray Delisle and Matt Lillard, they'd been on the show too, but Frank had been on the show from the very beginning. He had always been the voice of Fred, and now he was the, Fred, the voice of Fred and um, Scooby. So when we kind of really changed the character of Fred, but did, we, we always looked at the character of Fred as like, we're going to change it, but we're not going to change it. One of the big hurdles that we feared was that Frank would read it and hate it and not want to do it. And because if Frank didn't want to do it, that was it. We were done. It wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. And so when we went into the first record for it, I didn't know Frank first off at the time. I, I have since gotten to know Frank Welker and he is just a, a as, as great as you might hope he would be. And he, we've become friends and I've used him in other shows now. I, I, I really like Frank a lot. But what happened was Frank, he got the script and he saw immediately that we were doing something different with it. And he started to change the way that he was doing Fred. And we stopped him and said, no, you know, we wrote it for your voice. You know, I, I, I wrote this character for your voice. The character may not be saying things that he said before, but we want you to do it exactly the way you've done it before. Just so you know, we're not changing Fred. We're just changing some of Fred's story. We're changing the thing in the way Fred reacts to things and relates to things. We're trying to give Fred a little bit more dimension than he's had as just the sort of pretty boy, you know, throughout the other versions of the series. And so he said, so we don't want you to change what you're doing. And he was like, oh, and then he got into it and he, he loved it. He, he was so, I mean, he's been very, very kind to us in interviews and stuff like that, but um, no, he loved it. He loved it because he'd been doing it for, like you said, 40 years. And it's pretty much been the same character for 40 years. And suddenly we came along and we said, we don't want you to change your voice. We don't want to change your acting style. Nothing. We just want you to do this version of the character. And he was totally game and down for it and totally got it. 100%. Because what he realized was we'd written it so that he could just keep doing his normal old Fred voice, which would make the character even funnier. Where you said, you don't, we're not going to play any of this for laughs. You know, play it straight. Play it as if Fred takes all this stuff very, very seriously. Because if you play it for laughs, it's not going to work. But if you play it straight and dramatic, I think it'll work great. And it did. And so he was totally down. And once we got the Frank Welker sign off, we were bulletproof. You know, once Frank signed off on it, we were totally bulletproof. That was all we needed. And it was awesome. After that, Frank kind of has gone into semi-retirement. He doesn't do as much as he used to do, but I've still been able to pull him out of retirement a couple of times. And we've talked uh, at a couple of things about Scooby and stuff like that. And he's, 
he's just a great guy and super talented and but they all were. It was a really good and Mindy uh Mindy Cohn, that was the other that was Velma. They were a great cast. I mean they were all Matt Lillard Matt Lillard, who I kind of already knew was awesome. Gray Delisle is amazingly talented. And then and you haven't mentioned uh Udo Kier as Professor Pericles. So now Udo Kier, I forget how we ended up getting Udo. I don't think he was the first version. We had a couple of, I think we had somebody else that did Pericles before Udo, but then we didn't go with them. And then I knew who Udo Kier was, but nobody else did. Our casting people knew who he was. So we got Udo in and Udo speaks English, but he speaks it with a very thick German accent. But what I loved about, but what I loved about Udo Kier was again, so game to do whatever we wanted. And when he would do Pericles, he would literally flap his wings in the booth like a bird. Yeah, all the time. And he was just great. And then he would he would sometimes do it with his shirt off. Uh, if the shirt because because when you're in a recording booth, if you have a shirt that makes a lot of noise, that noise shows up on the mic. And he started doing it. We're like, Udo, we can't have you doing that, you know, because your shirt, the noise from your shirt keeps showing up on the recordings. And he goes, Oh, yeah, I just turned my sh- I take my shirt off. And then he just took his shirt off and did the rest of the recording shirtless. So, which was fantastic. He's Udo Kier is a tremendously fascinating guy. I mean, he's, you know, he was part of Andy Warhol's factory. He's like a God in Germany, uh, you know, an actor. And um, he's really into like mid-century modern furniture. And he used to invite me up to his ranch in Palm Springs all the time, you know, to see his furniture. Never did get there, but I did want to go. But again, he was another person. He and I remained friends afterwards. I just love Dudo. I have pictures of he and I hanging out together. I, 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 I happen to really like people who've had interesting life stories because I just find them fascinating. And he is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. I mean, Frank is too. Udo Kier, because his career has touched so many iconic moments in film. Uh, he's just a really fascinating guy to talk to. I mean, he's worked with like, Every great, I mean, a lot of great directors. He's like a regular with Lars von Trier. So he used to tell me all about working with Lars von Trier and stuff like that. And it's just this, these great stories that you just would never get to hear. I love Dudo. I tried to cast Dudo in another show I did called All Hail King Julian. And they thought his, they, they didn't go for his accent. They thought his accent made him too hard to understand. I disagreed. We ended up casting, recasting him and uh, with somebody and that, and that person was great too. But I love I love Udo, and if he's ever, I'm not sure he's even here in town anymore. I think he might be back in Europe. But if I can ever do it, I will I will always work with Udo. He's just an amazing guy. There are actually two Professor Pericles dolls that were made. There was a very brief moment in time where uh, what you call consumer products considered doing a, a special Mystery Incorporated line of toys. And uh, it, I don't I don't believe it ever came to pass, but they did make a concept version of Professor Pericles and Tony Cervoni has one and I have the other. And it sits somewhere in storage right now. They uh, one of the executives at Warner Brothers tried to steal it, but I snagged it from him before I left. I snagged it back. I see the references Velma saying, like, who do you think it is, Rorschach? I see a lot of Alan Moore in there, and I, I yeah, am yeah, wondering if yeah. the previous incarnations of the Mysteries, Inc. gang is kind of like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think the only one that comes close to that is the one that takes – it's in the second season, the ones when they're in the, the, the library where they have the monkey. 
yeah, we, we had notions of that in the back of our heads, you know, with the idea of the watchman, certainly that's, yeah, that I forgot about that Rorschach, Rorschach line. Like I said, it's got a lot of different influences, more, more movie than anything else, but we definitely had some of the comic book, you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think Watchmen was probably more prevalent than, than that. I was a big fan of, you know, the original um, X-Files. And in fact, we sort of, part of the way we came up with the structure for the show was we based it on stuff that they'd done on the X-Files and in terms of how they would, because if you watch the show, you'll see that it's, there's a, every show is technically standalone if you want it to be, because there's every show has its own villain. But then like they did on the X-Files, we wove in this other storyline that goes throughout the entire season. And then by the end of the 52, it becomes really the predominant storyline, which is not dissimilar from the way they did the Smoking Man storyline on the X-Files and, and other shows too. They're not, that certainly the X-Files is the only one that's done that. But, but yeah, most of the references we used on that show, some came from comic books, a lot from movies and a lot from literature, both horror literature and in the case of Nibiru, I forget where, that's like doomsday literature that Mike Ryan had somewhere. You know, we, we took an attitude that was nothing was going to be, oh, and there's also a lot of 80s stuff in it as well. You know, there's the one in the second season, there's an episode. Well, well there's one episode actually just called Stand and Deliver, which was the name of an Adam Ant song, where literally there's a dandy highwayman who is grabbing, who is um, seducing women on the show. And then we did another one where we where we actually had the English beat on the show as, oh, well, here's a tidbit for you. Oh, here's a nice little, this is something that almost nobody knows. So we did this episode with the English beat uh, where they wrote a song for us and did it. The episode where, what's her name? One of the original VJs from M- MTV is on it as well. Martha Quinn is in it. And then it's where this um, this band shows up. I think the episode starts off with them finding this band in a, there's this band that supposedly like Leonard Skinner had crashed in a field, but it was a ska band in this version. And then the ska band comes back from the dead and begins terrorizing everyone. Well, the reason it ended up being the English beat, they were not the first band that was going to do the show. The first band that was going to do the show. And we wrote an entire episode around it was tenacious D because I've known those guys for a long time. And so I got a friend of mine, a friend Bob White, who was going to write this, who wrote the script for it. And the whole episode was going to be about how Kyle Gass was super famous and that Jack Black was basically his sidekick. And, um, and that was one of the conceits of the joke in the show. And then it was going to be about this band that had crashed at the end of being Jack and Kyle. And then they were, uh, and they were playing themselves in the show. And then they were going to write a song for us and, and it was literally all set to go. And then we were a day away, I think, from recording the song. And then something happened with the lawyers and it all fell apart. So we had to we, we had to scrap the show entirely and then come up with a different concept for it, which ended up being that English beat episode, um, which is fine. Although I would have loved I would have loved to have done the Tenacious D episode, but it was not to be. And at the time. At the time, they were popular, but maybe not as well-known as they are now. And I remember, remember the brass at, at Warner Brothers was kind of like, nobody knows who they are. And we're like, no, I don't really say that exactly. I think some people know who they are. There's a Mama Cass lookalike in there, and I know there's a uh, Don Knotts okay. lookalike in other episodes. So it's like that's, that nice... That's the, okay, the Don Knotts 
is in the pilot. The Don Knotts, because we got in trouble for that. We used Don Knotts' likeness, and then we dubbed in somebody doing a Don Knotts-like voice, and then we got in trouble. So I think we had we had to remove we had to remove the voice. And Mama Cass is in one of those episodes. I forget which one though. She might be in that one, or she might be in one of the I forget. But yeah, Mama Cass was definitely in one of those episodes because I think she was in the original. She was in some of the original Scooby Doo's, the early ones. We tapped into that. The other nice thing about Mystery Incorporated was a very it was very collaborative with the artists involved too. And one of the gags was and that made it it actually became a part of the show was in the second episode, in the second or third episode, there's a uh, it's about they go to a town called Gatorsburg where people are dressing up for, as alligators to chase other people away, which is totally stupid, but there's a part where they walk into a hotel and as Scooby is walking up to the hotel, the neon goes out on the sign and it says, and it spells out the dog dies. So that was a joke that was put in by our art director, Dan Crawl. So Dan had put that in and he said, he called me and he was like, he said, what do you think of this? I said, Oh, I think that's really funny. Let's do that. Let's put that in. So Dan put this joke in. Well, a lot of the fans who watched it thought that we were laying the groundwork for something. We were, we were laying the groundwork for something that was going to happen in the future. We weren't. Um, we just thought, we just thought it was a funny joke, but because so many fans started writing that, you know, when we started, because we read all the blog posts, we would, or we were always reading stuff to see like if anybody was catching things or if there was any sort of like canon that, that was interesting that we could explore. We were always, trolling those sites to read the stuff and we kept coming across that one that was like the dog dies all these theories about what that meant and where that was going and what was going to happen and so tony and i went you know what we got to fucking work that into the show somehow so that was how the whole notion that uh, an animal must be sacrificed in order for nibiru to live that whole idea started because of that one gag that we put in you know, we always knew what the narrative was going to be, but we, you know, we didn't have all the puzzle pieces figured out. And that became one of the major puzzle pieces. And it was completely because the fans were convinced that there was something in all that, in, in that neat, in those neon words. And so we, we always thought, should we tell people? We're like, nah, let's make people think that we're geniuses, that we, uh, that we planned all that shit, you know, but, so, but that's the truth can now be told that that, that whole thing came about because the fans thought, that we had hidden something where really we hadn't, but then we decided, Oh, fuck it. Let's do it. <laughs> so I, and I happen to love that kind of stuff. And we, you know, again, we, we would troll the fan sites reading blog posts to hear what people's theories were to see if anybody was getting close to figuring stuff out or like the planet, all the stuff with the planetospheric disc to see what they thought to see if anybody caught there's other things in there too. Like in the first season, there's a whole bunch of like numbers that they find that are on different things. And I think somebody finally figured this out, but those numbers are the same numbers that were part of the code from lost. And so we put those in there and that was, that was basically a red herring. There was nothing to find there. We just wanted to see if people would figure it out. But there was another thing too, is where there's one episode where we gave the, the longitude and latitude for where uh, I think the planet planetospheric disc would lead you. And if you actually looked up that longitude and latitude, it led you to Sam Register's office on the Warner Brothers lot. 
again, I don't know if anyone ever figured that out, but uh, but that actually it actually was the actual location of his office on the lot. There's stuff like that all over the place, but and we had a we had a great great fun doing it. We you know there's hidden stuff in the backgrounds and in books and things like that. Yeah, I absolutely loved how you brought in things like the Hex Girls or Vincent Van Gogh, especially. Hex Girls, Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, I loved it. And I wanted to do, I mean, the fun for that for me was doing all the Vincent Van Gogh movies because I grew up watching like on the, the, I think it was called the 330 movie out here in LA. But, you know, we had a, we had our own horror guy who would do, uh, you know, on Saturdays or whatever day he did it, where he'd do his horror shows. And they were always, they inevitably were Vincent Price movies, like The Conqueror Worm and Witchfinder General and movies like that. And that and that was what, when we decided we were going to do Vincent Van Gogh, that was the first thing. It was like, I want to do parodies of those movies. So we're going to do that. And uh, we had so many, we had more of them, but we weren't allowed to, we didn't end up getting to do them, but we had so much fun doing those. God, I loved it. And then that was Maurice, the, uh, that's Maurice LaMarche doing the voice of uh, Vincent Van Gogh. And Maurice, as you know, is the the brain and a billion other voices and stuff like that. So, yeah, Vincent Van Gogh loved Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, I love that character. Were there any issues as far as Maurice doing a Vincent Price impersonation versus the original? I think it was no. originally Vincent Price on the 13 it Ghosts, was wasn't it? Yeah. No. Yes, it was. Um and it was, and no, not that I'm aware, not that I was ever told at least. We never had any trouble. I'm trying to remember if we ever had any trouble doing stuff. We didn't do a lot of that stuff. We, I mean, that was, we didn't do a lot of the celebrity stuff like they did and something like, but if the funny thing is that Mike Ryan is now doing the version of Scooby-Doo that's out right now, which is, has like Bobby Flay and all of these other people on it. It's all the celebrity versions of it. But God, oh, we, we had so much, we had so much fun doing the Vincent Van Gogh stuff loved it well i was just so grateful too when i saw you doing um speaking of andy warhol doing the the, the factory and the um, uh, velvet underground send up that was fantastic not something the kids are going to get you know in that song that scooby sings in the guise of nico which i wrote and it was based on a we based it right on a, a velvet underground song but yeah i mean there's an exact lou reed copy in that episode we did all this shit and we you know we named Red beef. Yeah. And uh, it was just, you know, we, uh, yeah, that was another one where we just, we knew that kids weren't going to understand the Warhol thing, but we figured out oh, they'll, they'll have a good time with the monster that keeps eating people for the sake of art. You got to say a lot of the episodes were, I mean, the, the premises of the concepts for a lot of episodes just came from things that made us laugh that we'd just be sitting around just going, Oh my God, what if we did this? And then they would, and then we just start laughing. And um, and there was a lot of alcohol being consumed, especially in the second season. It was it was a blast. We had a good. That was a really fun. I mean, that was. I've worked on a bunch of shows since then, but that was that particular show. You know, every every two or three shows, you get to work on something that just is is it's touched. There's just something about it that you know it's everybody's into it and everybody's really having a good time and totally behind what we're trying to do, like 100 percent and. And that was one of those shows. In fact, I remember we had some guys on the show. Um, oh God, I can't remember his name. It was one of our character designers. He was a diehard Scooby-Doo fan and loved the fact that we were back to the old traditional way, which is that at the end of every episode, the villains are always 
shown to be human, not supernatural. And then towards the end of the second season, when we started to veer more into the supernatural towards the end, he was so angry with me. He was so angry. He says, you've wrecked it. What did you do? He was just angry. He felt I had, he felt I had betrayed him and other people. And I was like, come on. I said, look, we've, we've done, we've done 45 episodes with that format. You know, this is, we've always been leading in this direction. So we're going to go and, you know, let's give them something a little different and then blah, blah, blah. I understand that, 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 and I, and I believe in that too. And this, which is why most of the show is, is that format of the human, that humans are the ones that are the villains, not actual supernatural characters. I said, but come on, you know, we, we needed to get to this place. We needed to take it up a notch and everything. But he, I think for, for years after that, every time I would see him, he would give me shit about it. Like how you just, you should, I just, you know, yeah, Mitch, it was great. It was great until you guys decided to do supernatural stuff. And then you wrecked it. You wrecked it. And I'm like, okay, whatever. All right. <laughs> You're, I, I understand. I get it. It was funny because there, but like I said, there are people who are very, very protective of it. Uh, another example was when my daughter, my first daughter was born while I was, while we were making Mr. Incorporated. And we had for a brief period of time, we had a, a, a nurse helping us at home. She stayed with us for a couple of weeks and she found out that I worked on Scooby-Doo and it turned out she was one of the biggest Scooby-Doo fans you could possibly imagine. She, she watched it religiously and only the first, but the first one, they were the original. She was a diehard and that was her favorite show ever. She had tons of Scooby-Doo stuff and she was so excited to be working for somebody who was doing Scooby-Doo that she couldn't wait to go see it. And so then she went and she saw it and then she didn't say anything to me about it. And, uh, and I finally said, well, you know, what did you think? Did you like it? She goes, look, Mr. Watson, I don't, I don't want to offend you, but I just don't like it. I don't like it at all. And I'm like, why? And she says, it's just not the, it's not the original show. You guys just, you know, you did, you're doing different. I go, well, yeah, of course. It's not the show from 68. She goes, that's my show. That's the show I love. I don't, I can't, I can't, you know, the changes and I, I, I just, I'm, I can't, I can't roll with those. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. You know, that's fair. I get it. Uh, but there are people who just absolutely can't roll with it. You know, there were a couple of reviews early on that were the same. They were like, they've done the, they, they went too far. The dog is talking too much. Why is Fred such an idiot? Why is Velma such a bitch? Da, 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 da. And, our, and, and we always just went, well, they haven't. And my, my response was always just hang in there. There's a reason this is, there's a reason we're doing all of this. We're not just throwing shit out there just to do it. There's a, this has all been thought out. We plan, we've, we have a 52 episode plan. Just give it time. And some people did, and hopefully they were happy. And other people just went, no, fuck you. We're never going to watch the show. So, you know, whatever. That's, that's the way, you know, that's, if something appeals to everybody, it's my feeling that then you've sort of failed. It should offend, whatever you do should offend somebody. If it appeals to everyone, that means there's nothing really in it to sort of, that push, that you're, you're not pushing the, the envelope, or you're not pushing into different territories at all. Um, you, you, I think you want to have at least a, a handful of people hate it. You want to have more people like it, of course, but you know, people are always going to, no matter what, you can't please everybody. And that's fine. That's totally fine. You, you were talking about, uh, but we're the Batman. You worked on that. I know you worked on all hail, uh, King Julian. What are you working on these days? So I have made my way back to Nickelodeon. Uh, I'm over at Nickel. I was at DreamWorks for many, many years. Uh, and then I, now I, I went I got offered to come over to Nickelodeon to adapt 
um, a book series, which if you don't have kids, you probably don't know it. But if you do, it's a book series called Big Nate, which has been around for a long time. It's It's been around, I think it was a comic strip. Uh, I think it started in 1992 by a guy named Lincoln Pierce. And then there's eight or nine books now. It's very super popular in the same vein as um, A Diary of the Wimpy Kid, although a little bit more, um, a little bit more blown out. It's a little bit Ferris Bueller. It's a little bit Dennis the Menace. It's got a lot of music, a lot of crazy humor, and some really interesting. It goes back and forth between 3D from CGI and, and to 2D. It's got a really kick-ass cast. Who uh you would see who are some of the people you would know that are I, I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to talk about this because I think it's already been in, in the papers. Um, a guy named Rob Delaney, who you may or may not know, is on the TV show Catastrophe or created the TV show Catastrophe on Premiere on Prime on Amazon. He's a stand-up comedian. He's brilliant. Um, Dove Cameron, who's a big Disney star, star of The Descendants and Live and Maddie. Um, Jack Black. Uh, is also going to uh, appear. We've got some good, and then a, a bunch of other people who you wouldn't know, but who are super, super talented, and we're very excited to have them. But anyways, it's a comedy. It's a straight-up comedy. Since Mystery Incorporated, I've been trying to do another horror thing, but it never seemed to come to pass. Those are little, those are horror things. But now the nice thing is, in animation, is they're finally, because of Amazon, because of um, Netflix, they're starting to get more and more into um, adult animation, like pure adult animation, not adult comedy animation, like adult horror and adult dramas. Uh, like, you know, the, they've been doing them in Japan forever, but now finally the United States is catching up. And uh, so I'm hoping that sooner or later, some of the horror projects that I've always wanted to do are going to get, uh, are going to get going. But for right now, this is a, uh, we're having a blast doing this i mean we started we started full production the first day of the pandemic so we have actually never we've never uh, done any of it from the actual studio we're all done it there are people on the crew i've never met in person there are actors on the show i've never met in person because they're all everything's you know we did the auditions and we do the records over conference calls and that's the let me tell you something doing a we just did a 14 actor ensemble record over a conference call. That, that is an interesting experience to do that, but, uh, but we're making it work somehow. Not quite sure how, but we're doing it. Oh shit. I'm supposed to be in something. I think oh, right now. Okay. Hold whoops. on. <laughs> <laughs> shit. Uh, I think, yes, I'm supposed to be in a meeting. Oh right man. Now. I've oh, abused God, your I'm time. So sorry. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's totally. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Oh shit. I'll, my problem is I'll ramble forever because, uh, you know, this is, it's, I, I find all this shit interesting. So. Me too. So this was great. Um, thank you so much. I, oh, thank you, man. Thank you for being a fan of the show. Thank you for, for, you know, being into it after so many years and, and getting the word out. We, I, like I said, Tony and I always hoped that something like that might happen and we didn't know if it would. It's very life affirming that, um, something that we worked on 10 years ago, that people are still, you know, getting inspiration for and enjoying and stuff like that. So I really appreciate it. Thank you.
All right, we're back and we're talking about Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. I so agree with what you were saying, Father Malone, before we took the break of this idea of a third season. And I know you just would have loved it because Harlan Ellison would have been Charlie to the Scooby Gang's Angels. Oh my God. I mean, there couldn't be a more perfect Mr. E than Harlan Ellison. <laughs> yeah, that his name begins with E. It was just so <laughs> wonderful. The fact that. that the fact that every single episode would have contained Mr. Harlan Ellison for just even thirty seconds. Oh my God! It would have it, it, it would have it just ignited me. <laughs> I want to talk about some of the other Scooby incarnations. I did make reference to the Cyber Chase, which was part of this. Like, I guess there were four Scooby movies that all came out right around the same time, which included Zombie Island and at least two others, and then Cyber Chase. Cyber Chase is probably one of the weaker ones of those four. Zombie Island, probably one of the stronger ones. I still, I love those self-referential things. Kiss has shown up a few times in Scooby Incarnations. I was, and I was watching one of those today and it was really touching my heart because it was Kiss at a theme park, their own theme park. And so immediately I'm thinking of Kiss Meets the Phantom. And I, I know some people have like shit all over the Scooby-Doo movies, the live action ones, but I'm not a big fan of the first one, but I still stand behind the second one. I really like what they did with the second movie. I, I don't know if you guys have found anything redeeming of those. And I haven't gone back and read uh, James Gunn's uh, script for the first one. I know he wanted to make it, quote unquote, dark and edgy, like we're going to do for, you know, every TV reboot type property in the in the 90s. But James Gunn, like as soon as Tony Cervoni came out the other day and was talking about how they wanted to make Velma a lesbian for Mystery Incorporated. I don't know if he came out with that first and then James Gunn glommed on or what, but you know, James Gunn is always famous for like, oh, wait, no, I did that. I was going to do that. No, Cervoni came out first and he did that thing he does. I am fine with the, the 2002 Scooby-Doo movie. I am still unhappy with James Gunn for going around and trying to destroy Nicole Perlman's Oh my God! Thank you so much. Okay, go. Please preach. Now I am unfamiliar with this story. So what is this that you're talking about? I might get assassinated by fanboys. Nicole Kaprolman is the first woman to get a credit for screenwriting a Marvel superhero movie, a, a major one, because there's Lexi Alexander and she deserves all praise for Punisher Warzone. But Nicole Perlman did all the groundwork of making Guardians of Galaxy be a big blockbuster movie that people would go to see, even though it's crazy go nuts with a space raccoon and weirdness. James Gunn came on as director and started doing stuff to the script. And he added his jokes and he came up with the idea of the tape. And then she got a screen credit. And when they started doing the press junkets, he would show up at the press junkets and start taking credit for the whole damn movie saying he wrote the whole script, that he did all the good parts of the script, and gradually people have forgotten that she was the screenwriter and that he was a co-screenwriter with her and a director. And I feel like I really learned what a good writer she was, speaking of being able to structure things and work plot elements in and work outside elements into the background and doing the world building that is sort of implicit in all the stuff that we've been talking about with Scooby-Doo, Mystery, Inc., 
by watching the second Guardians of the Galaxy because it's really apparent that he sort of just did a photocopy of her movie and then thought he'd just add more jokes and it would be okay. Um, so I don't, I don't know that you want to know what I think about James Gunn's things because I'm still angry about this thing. And every time I see him do something like, Oh, well, I wanted to make Velma a lesbian, but the studio wouldn't let me. Meanwhile, Tony Cervoni, and it's not like lesbians didn't exist in 2002 or that there weren't people in pop culture stuff that was widely watched that were gay. Um, <laughs> but he. Are you trying to tell me that lesbians existed before 2002? That's what? right. They were not. Whoa. Then. By Destroido. Are you trying to tell me that there were women authors before J.K. Rowling? It's true. That is so weird. How, how am I ever going to believe things that I read on Twitter? There are women authors that go all the way back to 1991. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You know what? Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to jump in because it, it, it's much worse than that. Nicole Perman was hired by Marvel and she was given access to their archives and they they said what what do you want to do and then she picked the most obscure group of characters you could possibly imagine the Guardians of the Galaxy now as a big old comic book nerd i've known about the Guardians of the Galaxy since i was 12 years old and she picked the lineup that we currently know as them like she picked Groot and uh, Rocket Raccoon. She picked Star-Lord. And, uh, she she set everything in motion. She wrote the majority of that script. If you want to go back, there it's available out there. Go back and read her script. Everything that happens that you enjoyed in that original movie is because of her. And he came in and added a fucking Walkman and some jokes. And then tried, unsuccessfully... Thankfully to Kevin Feige in this case, where he didn't allow uh, James Gunn to try and push her out, even though he tried mightily to do so. Uh, he allowed her to be on the fucking credits because he tried to get her off. But like every interesting concept you see in the original movie came from her. And that that is absolutely borne out if you watch Guardians of the Galaxy of Volume Two, quote unquote. How fucking cool! His script for that movie is garbage. That the second movie is nearly unwatchable. The first movie works fucking like gangbusters because of everything she did for it. He is a vile human being. I have never enjoyed anything he's done, including the two Scooby Doo movies. Like you know, minimally. Like, he added some things here and there, but everything he brought to the fore as far as live-action entertainment is, like, the most obvious thing you can possibly imagine. Oh, is is, is Shaggy a stoner? Oh, I, I had no idea. Thanks, James. Is Velma a lesbian? Oh, I, I was not aware of that. Thank you again, James. Go back and watch his Dawn of the Dead remake. I mean, Jesus Christ, he is the worst fucking screenwriter out there. There, I've said it all for everybody. I'm just glad to hear other people did not like Guardians of the Galaxy 2. This killed me. There was an article that came out six fucking months after that movie came out that were that said... 
Guardians of the Galaxy has some overtones of Empire Strikes Back. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. You just are you just noticing this now? Are you just noticing now that there are things? I mean, for God's sakes, when Mantis is like, oh, there's something I have to tell you. I was like, yeah, this is exactly like C-3PO talking about how the, the stormtroopers are in Cloud City. Come on. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh, my God. He's the worst, dude. He is so bereft of any original thought. I tried to watch the latest version of Scooby do, which was just called Scoob. And I think it was one of those, uh, one of the victims of COVID-19. I think it was supposed to come out theatrically. And I'm kind of glad it didn't come out theatrically because I would have gone to see it and I would have paid for it. I was was really disappointed. I got about, I'm going to say seven minutes into it. And then I was like, oh, well, we're back to the uh, tendency of Hanna-Barbera. At that point, they'd been purchased to uh, Warner Brothers Entertainment, where we're just going to play to the common denominator. It was exactly like fucking Justice League, where it was like, we're going to start with the Avengers, and then we're going to spin out the rest of the movies. If you started with the Avengers, no, nobody would know who the fuck Iron Man is, why this is coming about, what his character is about, none of this stuff. It's like Cyborg and the Flash and all these. Like, I don't know. Like, I know the Flash has been around and stuff, but I don't know his character. I don't know who the fuck Cyborg is. Understandably, when it came to Scoob, I was like, okay, yeah, there's dastard there's mutley and dastardly or whoever and i'm like okay there's blue falcon all right that's kind of interesting but it's like they're trying to spin out all these other movies from this main one rather than like everything we've been talking about with mystery incorporated where they're making references to stuff they took what they did in mystery incorporated where they had blue falcon come in and they reversed it so that Dynamut is the smart one and Blue Falcon is the dumb one. But what they did in Mystery Incorporated with those two characters was wonderful, where Blue Falcon is the Dark Knight Returns. I mean, it's just wonderful that they made Blue Falcon so incredibly dark and then have this goofy character with him. That particular episode absolutely staggered me. I watched Blue Falcon and Dynamut when I was a kid, and I didn't question it ever. Here these guys are going, you know what? Let's, let's shoot that through the Dark Knight Returns, which you also grew up loving. And let's see how that plays. And watching Blue Falcon be a fucking nightmare and Dino Mutt being the reasonable one was so incredible to me. When you were talking about how James Gunn wants to redo this as a redo Scooby Doo as like a dark and gritty thing. I'm like, but Mystery Incorporated is already like our dark Scooby-Doo. You were talking earlier about how some of the things are scary and they are scary and they're not just scary to little kids. But I found them, you know, like if I watch too much of it, I would find it stressful in the way that if I watch too much adult material, you know, I I find it stressful and like, oh, I watched one too many episodes of Doom Patrol tonight. That wasn't wise. Or I watched too much Baxter or too much Hannibal. I love that you're comparing Mystery Inc. to Hannibal. That is pretty awesome. 
one on at the same time, you know they'd have a Hannibal joke in there. That's true. And you were talking earlier, Father Malone, about this whole idea of, like, let's just get celebrities to do the voices. And I pointed out that Mark Wahlberg is the Blue Falcon in, in Scoob. And there were so many others where I was just like, why are you doing this? So it's an animated thing. So why do you have Will Fort doing the shaggy voice where is matthew lillard and they're just every every single voice is somebody else than it should be and it's all celebs it's zach efron as fred amanda seyfried as daphne you know it's just like what are you doing but the the most distracting one for me was ken jong as dino mutt it was one of those like who the fuck is this voice i know this voice i can't recognize this voice just kept going through it and and it was so distracting that I couldn't figure it out until I finally, you know, went to IMDb. But I'm just like, what are you doing with all these celeb voices? I mean, they got Frank Welker in there to do Scooby, but that's it. Everybody else, they were all celebrity voice people rather than voice actors. It always sort of bothers me. Like, you know, there are people out there trained to do this and just let them do their thing because while you're watching it, you don't give a shit other than when you are distracted by a potential voice. Like, why is Tiffany the voice of Judy Jensen in the Jetsons movie from 1991, other than she was super popular, kinda, at that time? Like, why not have the original person do the voice? Is it is it gonna bother anybody? Is it gonna draw anybody in? That's the ultimate thing. They think it's gonna draw someone in, and it's not. Nobody cares. Either you're into the fucking thing or you're not. And the fact that they're willing to cast aside actual talented people in order to pander to a a base that is not necessarily even available is crazy to me. I think they're pandering to themselves. Like, I think the base they're pandering to are the, the celebrities and the producers involved in the, the making of it, not to the audience. Who else is going to hire Tiffany to be a voice of a, a cartoon character? No, nobody. Oh, well, I got a call from her agent. We can get her. Let's do that. Let's cut out the actress who's been playing Judy Jetson for 30 years now, even though she can continue to do it. It's it's so mental to me. And you know what? Let's talk about the fucking Scooby-Doo movie. Can we? The live action one? Freddie Prince Jr. is Fred? Even Sarah Michelle Gellar. And you know what? Like, I've seen her in a couple of things where I've liked her, but she's not, she's not good. She's not, she's not, she's not good. She's not Daphne, certainly. Daphne, who is supposed to be, and I'm, I'm, look, I'm going to take the hit here. Like, Daphne is supposed to be the most attractive person in the world, and Sarah Michelle Gellar is not. There's a sort of a social contract in certain situations where you have had, have accepted somebody as attractive, and she's not that. She's not what Daphne was to me when I was, you know, eight years old watching Scooby-Doo on a fucking newly colorized television set. That movie to me, there are parts of it that I like. I mean, I like that there's an actual supernatural element going on. I liked Ela Fisher in it. I thought she was really funny. Ultimately, the best part of that particular movie, to me, are is the casting, which had nothing to do with James Gunn, because he probably would have cast it wildly differently, are Matthew Lillard and Linda Cardellini, who end up playing into the series that we're watching currently. 
they were fucking fantastic as their characters. I can't, you know, as much as I love Casey Kasem, like, I can't imagine anyone more appropriate than Matthew Lillard as Shaggy. Norville! I've heard some good Shaggy impersonations, and the best Shaggy I've heard outside of Lillard, because Lillard owns it, and he does a great job, and I like that he's not just doing a Casey Kasem impersonation, because you get those times where it's like, the voice actor wasn't available, so we have this person who is super close, but not close enough, and it just really throws you out. Like, I'm thinking of every post Jim Henson Kermit, where I'm just like, what What are you doing? Stop what are you your- doing? There was an episode of Saturday Night Live where Rob Lowe did an impersonation of Shaggy, and he was terrific. Today, what happens when ordinary citizens take the law into their own hands? On the surface, Mr. Montgomery's crime seems all too familiar. A desperate man down on his luck discovers a broken-down amusement park is built on top of some pirate treasure. So he tries to scare people away from it by dressing up like a ghost. An old, old story. But this time, there is a bizarre twist. His alleged crime was discovered by a group of amateur detectives. Two of them are here with me now. Please welcome Scooby-Doo and his associate, Warren Shaggy Shagowski. Mr. Dew, we'll start with you. What made you decide to take the law into your own hands? Well, one day, me and Scoob in the game <laughs> were sitting around the mall shop when we decided the law has gone soft and all the dirtbags who get their jollies dressing up as eight men are going deep-sea divers. Nancy, Mr. Shigalski can try to pass himself off as a champion of law and order, but the truth is this man and his dog, not to mention another member of their gang, a smaller, scrappier dog, all have an extensive criminal record. Prior convictions include four counts of meddling, 12 counts of meddling in the second degree, two counts of vehicular meddling, meddling across state lines, and last but not least, sodomy. I'm sorry, I misread that. It's meddling. I apologize. Well, zoinks! We're the ones putting our gonads out on the line. We're the ones dressing up like Italian barbers, pretending to give fake monsters a haircut. He'd have us believe he puts himself at risk. That sometimes he's so scared he tries to run away and can only float in midair, running in place. But the truth is, he and his friends actively go out looking for trouble. Like, we're not asking to give flat tires outside spooky castles, man. It just happens. Please, you're a degenerate. You know, Nancy, I once saw this man take two stacks of cold cuts, shuffle them like a deck of cards, then eat the entire thing. Lillard now is the voice of Shaggy, and to then switch that would be such a mistake, and that's one of the major mistakes that they did with Scoob. That was one of the best things to come out of those live-action Scooby-Doo movies was having Lillard in that role and Cardellini in that role and then being able to play to their strengths in other things like all of those standalone Scooby movies in the series, in Mystery Incorporated and and post-Mystery Incorporated series. I mean, it's just, it's so natural now to hear his voice as that. It's not a jarring thing. 
when people think about the golden age of animation, which is from about 1935 to about 1955, if you were to say, what is the best animation studio from that time, everyone is going to say Warner Brothers. And I don't disagree with them. Warner Brothers, the Termite Terrace, those crazy group of fucking individuals who are producing animation for us some 70, 80 years down the line are absolutely fantastic. But to my money, what Hanna-Barbera, Joseph Hanna and William Barbera were doing over at MGM outstrips them by leagues and bounds. When those guys came up with the characters of Tom and Jerry and animated those shorts, which they won a plethora of Academy Awards for, those guys, the animators that they surrounded themselves with, I'm talking about like people like Irv Spence, uh, Ed Barge, those guys, they were doing something unlike anything was going on at Warner Brothers. And you know what's funny is like when people look back and they talk about the craziest of animators, they always mention Tex Avery and they kind of lump them in with the Warner Brothers people. And to their credit, Tex Avery did some animation at Warner Brothers, but really all of his greatest material was was done over at MGM. Around 1955, once television came into its own, all of the animation studios shut down as far as what was going on at MGM and Warner Brothers and any of the other studios. Hannah and Barbera, William Hannah, Joseph Barbera, created their own studio in order to survive. Uh, they created their own studio, which created a, a, a situation called limited animation, which is, yeah, what, uh, which some people call semi-animation, which is, you know, even less of a term, where, you know, if you're looking at a, something happening on screen and the character has to raise their, their hand, only the hand is going to be animated. Which, by the way, Chuck Jones, who is, I know he's lionized. Chuck Jones called... Hanna Barbera's attempted animation after the fact, uh, he called it what animated radio, where he figured they weren't really animating anything at all. You know, Chuck Jones, he created some beautiful animations. Like What's Opera Doc is a fucking work of genius, no question about it. What's Opera Doc with Michigan J Frog there is like staggering to this day. Nevertheless, this is a guy who hated Hanna-Barbera so much and their success with Tom and Jerry that he created Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote as a reaction to them. He was kind of making fun of them. Like years after MGM had closed their studio in 1963, he took over what was left of the studio. And what was he doing? Tom and Jerry cartoons. So Chuck Jones is one of those guys who lasted longer than everybody. So he was able to build up his own reputation, uh, you know, much to the, the chagrin of everyone who had died before him. So Hanna-Barbera broke away from MGM because, well, there was really no choice. Nevertheless, so they created limited animation that, you know, they did the I Love Lucy credits. They did the Bewitched credits. And then they created the Flintstones. And the idea was that even though when they were at their heyday and they were being given a budget of like something like $35,000 for a short, now they were giving about $3,000. So a $35,000 short lasted about four minutes. Now they were given about $3,000 to produce 30 minutes or 22, 25 minutes of animation. 
which, you know, they basically did with xeriography. So they would recreate the background over and over again. It's kind of what we think of when we think about 1960s and 70s animation is really cheap, where you keep seeing the same thing happening over and over again. I can't give them enough credit for continuing the media when nobody else was interested in it. Yeah, I mean, they created a bunch of shows and, you know, eventually what we're talking about now is Scooby-Doo, which they didn't get to until about 1968, which is about 15 or so years after they created uh, their studio. But like all of their limited funds and resources, they they were able to keep it going and they, they never stopped. Like, I think there was a, at some point while they were working, uh, something like 80% of what was going on on Saturday morning cartoons was produced by Hanna-Barbera, which is a remarkable achievement. And to me, the animation never actually suffered. Like, they took some of the best guys that they had worked with beforehand and brought them over to the studio. So there was always still an interesting dynamic going on there. I just think Hanna-Barbera are like the fucking the standard bearers of animation because once it folded from a, a studio situation where they were throwing money at people, they, they, they soldiered on and were able to continue the animation to the point where we're now talking about a series from 2010, which tell me what Warner Brothers series we're talking about, even though technically this is a Warner Brothers series. A Warner Brothers series that was – Buried by the Cartoon Network. I was so amazed. That was one of the reasons why I called that out in the opening, that this is two seasons spread over 156 weeks. And just like to look at the production schedule, to look at when these were released, and it'd be like months between episodes. And here we are able to to binge these on Netflix and see all the intricacies and be able to connect all these dots and be like, Oh, see, look at those two characters, uh, uh, Brenda and Dylan, a nice reference to, uh, 90210. And they were in this episode and then they're this episode, or you're talking about the Griswold family and just like connect all those dots. As we sit here and watch these over a period of a couple of days, a couple of weeks, the people that watch these the first time around, if they could find them on a schedule, they're seeing them months apart or the cartoon network is just dumping them all at the same time. And it's like they, uh, there was one schedule where it was just like, okay, here's an episode this night, this night, this night, this night. It was just like, they're contractually obligated to get this stuff out there. So they're just going to put it on every night, but then there's six months between that bunch of episodes and the last bunch of episodes, you know? So if you're a Rick and Morty fan complaining about how long it takes between seasons, fuck you. I'm sorry. Cause this was, I would say as bad, if not worse. And at least with that cartoon network knows that Rick and Morty are these stars and they're going to make a big deal about it. Cartoon network hated mystery incorporated and suing everything that can to fuck it over and bury it on the schedule. Carol, you mentioned very early in the in this podcast about your appreciation of the design of the characters. Could you talk about that a little? They took a lot of original design elements from from the first sixty eight series. In the original series, there was a lot of backgrounds that looked almost like they were done by pastel, and they have some of that in this with the rocks. But then they do things that are like washes, and they have really uh, interesting squiggly wallpaper. And I like that they also um, hearken back, to, like one of my favorite 
Hanna-Barbera monster designs is the floating skull that's either in green ectoplasmic goo or fire. So like right now, my favorite monster from the Mystery Incorporated series is probably Infernicus because he's just (laughs) one of those skulls with fire all around him. Like one of the things that stuck with me when I was watching Scooby-Doo when I was little was the anatomy of the monsters. If the monsters were actually monsters, then its skull floating around in fire made sense. If the monster was a person dressed up in a monster suit, that's just so much more interesting and confusing and evocative. And I, I just, I love that they stuck with stuff like that. I liked that even when they brought in monsters like the, what was it, the repellent Dr. Phobos, he was recognizably <laughs> vibes. But then they had that same acid green and they, his character's design fit with the other characters. Everything was sort of elongated. And I, and I've always been interested in the color palette they chose in the first place because they were sort of horror and they're going with a lot of like the blues and that lime green and everything is purple. But in this, they add like uh, the shadowing that I associate more with like nineties cartoons when you know, like Batman, the animated series started really doing heavy blacks and heavy shading. And they bring that into a Scooby-Doo, which is normally like a, a lighter series that's like, don't worry, the space kook isn't really a floating skull. It's a guy with a scheme that's about making money. Space kook has one of the best sound effects, that that laugh. So it's the ghost! one of the best names like i love that they stuck with it he's he's the space kook i love that in that very first episode that they're paying so much homage where it's just like here's the museum and we're going to go through the museum and that they even have fucking scrappy in that museum (laughs) when you were talking about scrappy and they're like we don't talk about him we promised we don't talk about him (laughs) look away mike look away Something I really love about the animation style here is uh, not only that the majority of it is hand-drawn animation. I think uh, there there's quite a bit of computer animation, particularly when it comes to vehicles. Uh, you know, the Mystery Machine is always a computer-generated thing. You know, the Crybaby Clowns uh, Hot Rod, it's definitely that. But there isn't a scene available in this entire series where everyone isn't highlighted like there's always a separation of light and dark on each of the characters, no matter what's going on. It's so evocative, so interesting. I don't know. It's like kind of incredible that a, a modern animation studio would insist upon that. It's, it's sort of part and parcel with everything else in the series where they're not satisfied with just the, standalone uh, episodes about whatever hazard they're going through. Like the, the, the fact that they've seized upon a color palette on each of the characters and no matter what's going on, we're all, it, it, it's always really uh, sort of evocative of something else. Like, I, I, I don't know, like 
I don't know. My my appreciation of the series just continues to grow and grow. It's all, it's all I can say. I, as a fan, fr- as a kid of the original series, where everything was a bit round, and I and, and let me let me sort of qualify my statements now in that I'm married to a graphic designer who, <laughs> while watching the series with her, was just like everything's too pointy, <laughs> which it is. Uh, compared to the original series. Um, nevertheless, the, 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 the choices of colors and shadows throughout the entire series is always incredible. Not to mention the fact that, you know, we have shots. I think Mike, you mentioned to me and us, uh, like early on, there are point of view shots in the first series with the crab monster, which are pretty incredible. And, and later on, there, there's a moment where Shaggy is watching what's going on and he's, he's sort of tented his fingers, uh, in front of his face and we're getting the point of view of Shaggy. So we have his fingers sort of framing what we're watching. That signifies that we're in the hands of somebody who really cares about the audience's perspective of what's going on. And that is so rare in, in, not only in a live action series, but like beyond what we could possibly anticipate or expect from an animated series. There are action sequences in the series. And I'm talking particularly about the Scorpion Wells sequence, the, 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 the Scorpion Wells episode of the series where the gang are investigating the Lilith character in this far-flung, deserty area where there's a Spanish galleon on top of a mountain. Put there by El Aguirre. <laughs> a nice Werner Herzog reference. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. No, like, not only... Like, putting aside the Fitzcarraldo fucking reference, which is absolutely insane for a fucking kid's show, when that fucking galleon starts sliding down the mountain, I've seen multi-million dollar Hollywood movies in live action that have come nowhere close to how exciting that sequence is with that Spanish galleon sliding down the side of a mesa in, you know, random town USA. Like, there are action sequences throughout the series that are enthralling. That's really incredible that they would go to that point and then continue and, like, actually pay off. Like, the fact that in that episode particularly, that galleon comes down that mesa and destroys the town of these, by the way, Hills Have Eyes group of family. I mean, what the fuck is going on there? <laughs> where where they've gone the extra mile and given us them. By the way, voiced by Lorraine Newman... As as Grandma Smaggle, Snaggletooth? Holy shit. Uh, one more thing before we wrap it up. I just wanted to recommend that um, I haven't read the new Scooby-Doo comics that are just coming out, but I was a real big fan of some of the Scooby-Doo comics that were coming out over the last couple of years, which were Scooby Apocalypse, which was an interesting take on the Scooby gang and recasting them. You talked about just how malleable these characters were and being able to recast them again as 
Norvell being a security guard, which is kind of, again, a throwback to uh, some previous stuff that we've seen. But Norvell's a security guard, and he's working at a facility where Velma is a scientist, and they're actually working on enhancing animals. And this one actually uses Scrappy in a good way. Scrappy is this um, enhanced animal who is very jealous of Scooby-Doo, and Scooby-Doo is actually a reject because he cannot speak very well, but we know that Scrappy can speak well, and there's this whole thing going on there. There's this whole thing with Velma having these crazy brothers and just the way that they uh, manipulate her and I think again we go back to it's very zombie island. It's it's uh, Velma. I want to say is a uh, is a reporter and Fred is the cameraman kind of thing. I could be wrong because it has been a while since I've read this, but it goes on for quite a while and I really enjoyed it. It, it was good. Um, I can't say it came to the best ending in the world, but I had to say it really kept me on the edge of my seat for however many months this was out. And I don't tend to look at monthly comic books, but a friend of mine recommended this to me and I was just like, okay, read it. And yeah, I love the recasting of that. And then, uh, Carol, you turned me on to one that I have yet to read, but this whole idea of taking Snagglepuss and recasting him and making him into more of an adult comic sounds wonderful as well. It's kind of a depressing comic because he's having a depressing life and he is a gay actor uh, at a time when it was not great for him to be a gay actor. So people should check out the Snagglepuss Chronicles if that sounds like something they'd like to read. Well, I want to thank this week's co-host so much, Carol and Father Malone. Carol, what has been keeping you busy during the pandemic? Uh, I am still at it at the Cultural Gutter. We write thoughtful articles about disreputable art. There's a new article up every Thursday. Um, we have people writing about horror. I write about comics there. We have people writing about Bollywood films, TV, movies, and science fiction. And we should be coming up on the next Gutterthon soon, but I'm not sure what the dates are because, you know, asking for money during COVID, just not an easy thing to do. And Father Malone, what's going on in your crumbling world? You can always check me out on my YouTube page, Ot5Films, O-U-G-H-T-F-I-V-E. F-I-L-M-S. I have a ton of content, including my my show called You've Never Seen, which Mike will never let me live down, uh, which is a show about uh, movies that have not gotten their proper due. You can also hear me over on Chronicles from the Crypt, a, a uh, podcast about the HBO television series Tales from the Crypt, and... You can also hear me on Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast, which I co-host with uh, – wait, who is it? Is it you? Uh, Chris Dashew. Oh, it's Chris Dashew. It has nothing to do <laughs> with Mike White. But uh, check me out on all of those platforms, and uh, I hope to hear uh, – I hope to hear your comments about you've never seen basically saying – Well, I have seen this movie. Well, thank you again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
the pretty words that I feel in my heart. If my voice could make the sound, I would tell you how I love you and we'd never be apart. But with just one look into your face, my mind starts to drift right into space and the words get stuck in my throat. Inside of my heart, I would turn the power on. It would amplify my love for you and swear to always love you, and you'd never be gone. But with just one look into your eyes, I become excited, and it's no surprise. Those with haste, we can't. 
blasted off And along we went Off Bermuda to an island resort that we rent this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.